Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMA L O T. And joined as always by my guy Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him on Twitter at CJ Saftik. And we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 28, headlined by a heavyweight fight between Jerzinho Rosenstrike and Augusto Sakai. Why these guys are in the main event, no fucking clue, is what it is. We had one week off. I'm sure you guys missed us. Cody, what did you do with this week off that we had from the UFC to get right back into things? Mm. Yeah, so I actually went on like a little road trip. I was like, when when do you ever get the rare week off from UFC? And it wasn't just like UFC was off, but there was no Bellator, there was no PFL, there was quintessentially nothing going on. So yeah, I went to go visit my grandparents. They live like five hours from me, but nice. yeah, no time like the present. So I went down there, spent the weekend, pretty good. I know I shot a recap video, look sketchy times. A lot of people thought I may have been kidnapped. <laughs> good news is not kidnapped so we come back to what like you're saying could be a dog shit card but because there's that week off you're excited again you know you're rejuvenated you're pumped to get at it so we get a whack-ass heavyweight headliner and we get a somewhat whack-ass (laughs) co-headliner couldn't be happier to be here my friend so looking forward to it absolutely absolutely yeah i'm really excited for miguel baeza and santiago ponzini but that's going to be an amazing fight and i can't wait to hear your thoughts on that fight as well just to remind you guys i believe this is another sh- uh early start time 7 p.m eastern main card start time so i believe the prelims actually kick off at 4 p.m eastern so don't be snoozing on this one either this is the start of four straight weekends of ufc events and they give us another weekend off on july 3rd but we are back with a mega event with connor and poirier three kicking us off on july 10th for i think seven straight weekends in a row so we're in the thick of things right here I'm very excited to at least have a card to break down with my guy Cody here. Uh, do want to remind you guys, hit that like, hit that subscribe. And also, Cody's channel is in the description below as well. So make sure you guys go visit his so you guys can catch his recaps and all the other phenomenal things that he's going to be doing over there on the YouTube channel. So please do support us. And that's the best way to do so. Just hit that like and hit that subscribe on both of our YouTube channels. And that's the best you guys can do for us. And obviously, view us every Thursday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern to catch us propping you up for every single UFC card. All right. Let's not waste too much more time. Let's kick things off right in the uh, lightweight division. We got the return of Claudio Poyas going up against Jordan Levitt. Uh, in terms of odds, we're talking about minus 200 for Jordan Levitt and plus 170 for Claudio Poyas. Um, minus 240 was actually the opener on Levitt, so... We've had some money come in on Claudio Poyas in this point in time, and I, I kind of understand it, right? I, I'm still a skeptic of the Monkey God. I'm not. A, I'm not totally sold on the Monkey God, and a lot of people are. Like I'm uh, during my, uh, or actually on the comment section of my podcast I posted earlier this week, everybody's like, "Oh, Jordan Levitt's lock of the night." I'm not sure what you're talking about picking Poyas to win, but I'm not sold on him. He seems very one-dimensional. His striking leaves a lot to be desired, and uh, the one fight that I highly suggest everybody go back and watch is his fight against. I believe the guy's name is Izzy William. Or Izzy William uh, from February of last year. So it was, just, it was right before he actually opted onto the contender series. And good God, he leaves a lot to be desired. Now, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, right? He's still young. He's 24, 25 years old, I believe it is. So he's still improving on a fight to fight basis. But you're going to have to need to improve a lot in terms of your striking, in terms of what we saw in that fight. And we just don't see him striking, right? He uh, Luke Flores on the contender series was willing to engage with him in the grappling, thinking that he could submit the monkey god, was not able to. And unfortunately, he gets submitted. And then in the next fight, we get that Matt Wyman fight where, you know, he slammed KO somebody. Fun, good KO, right? A good fight IQ in terms of framing on the head of Matt Wyman, especially when he's trying to slam him and try to knock his lights on. He was successful in doing so. But I'm not sold on this guy yet. Claudio Poyas, you know, I'm not the highest on either, but I think he has a decent enough striking game he's uh i believe he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu the last i saw he was a brown belt back in 2018 so you got to believe within the last three years if he's been training consistently enough he's probably notched that black belt as well and he's also changed his training camp from 
uh, wherever he, the frick he was. Now he's over there in Sadford MMA, and you got to believe that they're actually doing some good work with this guy. So uh, if this fight does hit the ground, which I expect to do at a certain point in this fight, uh, I do think that Poyas can be competitive enough to stay out of this submission game and possibly stay away from getting grapple fucked here. And then when this fight is on the feet, you got to believe that Poyas is going to be able to light him up there. Uh, maybe not light him up to the way that Philippe Silva was able to let up Claudio Poyas way back, and then Poyas was able to pull off that comeback victory. Uh, but I still do think he's going to have a much uh, uh, much wider striking advantage here than Poyas is, uh, than Cl uh, Jordan Levitt's going to be able to. So the way that I see it going down, I think Poyas uh, nullifies the grappling game and the and the jiu-jitsu game of Levitt. I think he uh, touches him up on the feet. I do think he has live to potentially finish him on the feet. I know it's been a while since we've actually seen him finish somebody. He was back in 2015 on the regional scene where he actually finished somebody via strikes. But cut the guy some slack. He's only 2-1 in the UFC, was on the Ultimate Fighter Latin America at 20 years old, makes it to the finals and then gets knocked out by martin bravo now he's only 25 years old uh you know three fights deep into the ufc i still believe he has a lot to showcase for us uh but in terms of his uh props knockout is plus 677 i think that there's a little bit of value there uh even poyas inside the distance plus 345 um but the ones that i'm the, the two that i'm most uh intrigued by uh poyas by ko plus 677 and then poyas by decision plus 450 again you you want to notch a little bit of both of those you're probably getting some good value regardless uh, am I too harsh on the monkey god? Do you like Jordan Levitt here, or are you on the dog as well? No, I actually don't mind the monkey god Jordan Levitt. I think that he's a work in progress. I think that there's still a lot to be desired, like you're saying, but he's going to be one of these Ryan Hall-type guys where the striking doesn't look very good and the wrestling doesn't look very good, but eventually the scramble goes in his favor and he's able to lock something up. I mean, he's very opportunistic about his grappling. And listen, this is a guy that's athletic. He's got a good athletic frame. He's long. He's a jiu-jitsu guy, right? He's a jiu-jitsu guy. That's what he is at his base. But he starts fighting some amateur MMA, and he's undefeated out of Vegas. He's at a syndicate MMA, and you just you do see the improvements fight after fight after fight. I think he's developing very quickly. So again, Puelas is only 25 years old, and you got uh, Levitt's 26 years old. So they're still both very young, and I think he is making a lot of improvements. So I had initially seen him. He beat like his second fight out he beat Lucas Neufeld from Alberta right so that was a fight that was co-promoted with the guys from Fight Night in Alberta that was the first time I saw him close fight one-dimensional jiu-jitsu guy still leaves something to be desired but I see that the improvements that he's making fight to fight now you talk about the Izzy William fight and I'm going to agree with you right it's like he's still very green he doesn't have a, a striking game he's very uncomfortable striking he doesn't like to get hit he's not physically strong enough to muscle some of these takedowns to the ground and his wrestling is just not doesn't have the clean enough technique so what do you do you don't want to be betting on a guard puller but think about he fights that izzy williams fight and like you're saying every i hear the narrative everybody's saying the exact same thing in the very next fight lfa against Levon lewis Levon lewis is the brother of bayvon lewis fought in the ufc and he's also out of greg jackson's camp same talk but Levitt goes out there. He snatches up the neck. He picks up the victory. I thought he looked much improved. Still leaves something to be desired. Then he's on the contender series. Quick submission. Then he's in the Matt Wyman fight. Happens very quickly. But I all just think that his confidence is building. He himself is getting better. Hasn't quite shown it. Paulus is just such an anomaly. Who knows, right? Because like you said, he's on the Ultimate Fighter. He's 20. He's fighting in the UFC. He's 22 and 23. Now he's fully been off for two full years and he comes back as a 25-year-old. Anybody that leaves any sport as a 23-year-old comes back as a 25-year-old presumably is coming back as a better version of themselves. You're bigger, you're fuller, you're stronger, you're more confident. You're just a, a better athlete all around. So no doubt Paulus should have made improvements. But like you're saying, he's been at Stanford MMA for, for how long? For this camp? Because he's actually been in Peru for the last two years leading up to this fight. 
Has he made the improvements that Leavitt has? I don't know. I think this ends up shaking out as grappler versus grappler. Like you're saying, if Paulus can stuff the takedowns, keep the fight standing, maybe he has a slight striking advantage, that's his path of victory. For me, Levis has got to get this fight to the ground. And though Puelas is a primary grappler himself, I see a grappler versus grappler. So if we're attacking this from a prop perspective, I think, first of all, we look at this over one and a half, a minus 160. I like this for sure because you've got Levitt's never been knocked out. In fact, he's never been finished. He's undefeated as an amateur and as a pro. So again, the narrative that he's a bad striker and he could get knocked out, sure. But I think you're going to have to beat this guy a little bit. I think you're going to have to take this guy into later waters. I think it could be one of you like those third-round props. Like, yeah. it could be a late second-round finish or a third-round finish. But he's not getting cold-cocked in the first round. Especially from Puelas. Hasn't knocked a guy out in five years. Not known for striking to begin with. And you go back and you look at that Felipe Silva fight, and it's like, oh, oh my God. Oh, it reminded me of the first day I went to striking. And I don't know why the coach <laughs> did that to me. I have no idea why the coach did that to me. It was like a point. It was like, he'll either show up or he won't. But it was like, he beat the shit out of me. I had no idea what, no idea what I was doing. It looked like the same thing, like he's lost in there. Now, that's a long time ago. You know, it's a gut check. And he still wins the fight with a knee bar. But striking's not his primary thing. So is he knocking out Leavitz in the first? No. Is Leavitz knocking him out? No, no, I don't think so. We got two grapplers. If this fight hits the ground, I think both guys are savvy enough to stay out of harm's way and at least slow this thing down to at least that one and a half, a minus 160. Now, if it's going to just be two grapplers the entire time, we got a fight goes the distance at plus 140. And if you're of the Livitz camp and you think Livitz gets the job done, I know he does show a lot of submissions, but he shows a lot of submissions over guys that are Mostly strikers, and Matt Wyman landed on the back of his head after pulling guard. No idea what was going on there. But, uh, yeah, you can if you go Levitt by decision, it's plus 280. So it's a huge price tag. I know you're attacking the Puelas inside the distance for big money. I would look at it personally on the Levitt by decision for that big plus money 280. But the smart play here, regardless of who wins this, is that over 1.5. And, and I know not every book offers a 1.5, but... That's why it's important to have a good book, right? Five times readily available offers one and a half for every fight. Um, you know, because do I feel good about the two and a half? I mean, I'm going sprinkle small money on fight goes the distance. So I do personally. But now we're getting to greasy territory. The one and a half feels very safe to me. But I'm not, I'm not sure how your feelings are on that. Clearly not the same. You've got Paulus inside the distance. So well, we're a little bit off. But hopefully we bank around and a half regardless. I do kind of agree with you that I do think that it's going to be a little bit longer of a fight. I don't think he's going to start him in the first round or anything like that. I do believe it's going to have to take some fighting. It's going to have to take some demoralizing of Jordan Leva before he's uh, Poyas is able to go out there and get a striking game. Hopefully, we'll we'll see how that happens. But I want to be on the side that eventually where where Levitt loses, I know he's going to lose in the next couple fights. I want to be on the right side, especially at plus money, and I believe that it's going to be Poyas. Go ahead. So I did the same thing with Claudio Silva. Everybody knows I hate him. I hate him with a burning <laughs> passion, right? And I I would fade him in the early fights even though they were favorable matchups for him because i knew how bad he was i knew how bad he was and as soon as he got a mediocre guy i hit a couple nice tickets obviously we got court mcgee the last time out and uh you know you know before that uh james Krause, right so we yeah. got good tickets to get back in right i did the same thing with tied to ivasa he first came in i watched the tape i was like oh this guy's not good he's super athletic but he is green man yeah. he is oh and he won those initial fights because again he's fighting surreal asker like how are you gonna lose to surreal asker but it's like you're so antsy because you see the tape and you're like, the hole's there to be exploited. It's whether this is the right guy. So Matt Wyman, it's like, oh, dude, Matt, maybe Matt Wyman's the guy. It's like, no, because it's Matt Wyman, right? He hasn't won a fight in almost 10 years at this point. His body's broken down. He's a aged veteran. Like, it just wasn't his ghost. So now you got Puelas. It's like, Jesus, Puelas, that guy? Like, again, I don't think so. I see where yeah. you're going with it. I see where you see the holes and leave it. But you would need a guy that's either a really good wrestler or a really good striker. The wrestler could stuff the takedowns and force him to stand and leave it can't strike. 
The striker can just maul him standing. Claudio Paulus is none of those two things. He's not a wrestler nor a striker. He is also a grappler. Now, does he have a slight striking advantage? Yeah. Does he have a slight wrestling advantage? Could be. But but are they enough to definitively say that's how he's going to get it done? We'll only know come Saturday. But I'll tell you what, if you do hit, it will be a tasty little dog play for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. I do think there are a ton of barking dogs on this card, so I can't wait to get through the rest of it and see who else you're actually on here too. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Yusuf Zalal going up against Sean Woodson, minus 175 on Woodson and plus 155 on Yusuf Zalal. This was a spot where I thought I would be taking the dog, but after I run the tape a little bit, I'm more impressed, uh, more so with the Woodson side, but not so much to actually make a bet here. Uh, obviously, last time around, we saw Zalal go out there and lose to uh, Sung Woo Choi as a minus 245 favorite, but there were a ton of sharps that were on Choi that fight believing that he'd be able to keep the fight vertical which he did and then eventually go out there and outstrike Zalal with the superior Muay Thai technique now I think that we have a similar situation here with just the difference being Woodson is more of a boxer than a Muay Thai specialist like Choi was but I do think that he has good enough get-ups now I say get-ups and not takedown defense because he has been taken down in his last three fights with not the the most resistance but the issue is uh, guys are just not able to keep him down like Kyle Bakniak has accrued five minutes of control time against him in a 15-minute fight but that was all up against the cage while he was struggling to get uh, Woodson down and Woodson's just dishing out the damage. So even though it says five minutes of control time for Kyle Bakniak, he was getting hit the other uh, the entire time. I'm not sure if you could say that Woodson was getting absolutely controlled in those situations. So uh, yeah, uh, Bakniak was struggling to get him down uh, and Woodson was able to dish out the damage in that fight. Uh, again, all of the fights that Woodson gets taken down and especially in those last three fights, he springs right back to his feet like a, like a, like a cat, right? Um, he doesn't settle on the ground at all. Um, uh, recently, I, I believe it was Paul Felder or Michael Bisbing that I was talking about on, on the commentary team. Uh, as soon as you get taken down, that's your best chance to get right back to your feet. Don't allow your opponent to settle on top. That's when you have to really start to work to dig your hooks and get your butterfly hooks, whatever the hell it is, just to get back to your feet. And Woodson does a really good job in terms of getting right back to his feet and not letting his opponent settle on top, uh, which is where I think is going to be very important for him here. Zalal is kind of like an all-around dude, right? Like when his striking is going, he reverts to the takedowns. And when the takedowns aren't going, then he's kind of fucked, right? Just like we saw on the Sungu Choi fight and I think that's what's going to happen here against Woodson he might complete a couple takedowns but I don't think he's going to be able to keep him down I think Woodson's superior boxing is going to be, be able to keep him on the outside the dude's lanky as how a six foot two for 145 pounds is absolutely insane and he uses the range pretty well again with his superior boxing technique I believe he had 50 or 60 plus amateur boxing fights before he had a crazy car accident or something like that that derailed his boxing uh, dreams and he switched over to MMA and I thought it was a pretty good switch for him considering that he can still go out there and uses boxing boxing technique pretty well and pretty uh, efficiently like he's shown over his last several fights. Obviously, the Julian Rosa fight is the one that sticks out like a sore thumb, but Julian Rosa and Yusuf Zalal have two completely different styles of fighting, right? Arosa is a wily veteran. He stays in your face, puts the pressure on you, and it seemed like Woodson actually wilted under that pressure. Uh, I just don't expect that type of approach here from Zalal. So, um originally I wanted to pick Zalal especially I thought that the line was too wide obviously it's starting to come in now as people are starting to bet on Zalal uh, but when Woodson was up at that minus 260 minus two minus 200 ish range I thought it was a little bit too wide I still agree that the line is too wide uh, I am still going to pick uh, Woodson to win this fight and I do think he wins by decision Zalal is very durable he can take a shot uh, you know very good uh, submission defense as well uh, but I do think uh, we see Woodson win this fight by decision plus 130 
that's that's the line they're like even uh, i might even take your approach here with why well, i guess the overs are pretty juiced over Jeez. one and a half minus 410 yeah, over yeah, two and a half minus 245 so yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if i go to the decision minus 215 as well but yeah I, i'm gonna be on the woodson side here plus 130 on the decision prop for woodson i think he goes out there and outstrikes him for the majority of the 50 minutes stuffs the takedowns or even if he does get down right back to his feet and then gets Zalal working from distance again so i'm on woodson decision how are you feeling about this fight yeah dude i completely agree and a lot of the time i like to bet fight goes the distance and then my guy to win the distance so it, yeah. hopefully in a perfect world my guy wins he wins the decision i cash two tickets in a in a not so great world my guy loses that decision i still hit one of those tickets but you're right way too juiced here man minus 205 fight goes the distance even though i think it does you know it's two to one so if i'm going sean woodson i'm going sean woodson by decision which like you said plus 130 plus 135 that's the line you're looking at sean woodson is a massive guy for the weight class 62 78 inch reach but he's not big on finishes and this is not just the ufc like he's got the flying knee over terrence mckinney that was crazy that was highlight reel but quite literally the majority of his original show career even before coming into the ufc is a lot of decisions this guy is big volume, big volume. He doesn't mind hitting you 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 times over the course of a fight, but not exactly loading up on any one big strike. Now, the knee, you know, a knee to the face is the kind of thing that'll knock you out <laughs> if it lands. So, yeah, something like that, it lands and knocks you out. But but outside of that, it doesn't. To that extent, the Julian Arosa fight is not... Uh, the perfect fight for him, right? It looks like it on paper, but realistically, Julian Arosa's kryptonite, five first-round knockout losses. But again, Woodson doesn't have that knockout ability. So even though he put it on him, Arosa bad in the first round, Arosa took those shots as, again, Woodson just doesn't have the finishing ability standing. Uh, the later the fight goes, it's like Arosa is one of these guys that matches you tit for tat. And that's when it comes down to volume. So when you look at Julian Arosa, you know, throughout the course of his fights, if he's not getting knocked out, the guy easily racks up. He can go 100 significant strikes because he's a volume puncher. That kind of pace broke Woodson. That kind of pace caused him to fatigue by the third round and taking him into those later rounds and putting him away. That was all new territory for him. But he's undefeated. He's only 28 years old. Losing, good thing for him, right? Because now you can go back to the drawing board and be like, you know what? I got tired. And I got sucked into a dogfight. What could I have done different? You got to reevaluate things a little bit different. So no doubt, I still like Woodson. I think that, again, with his kind of frame and his height and his, his general reach at this weight class, he's going to be a tricky fighter for a lot of guys. I think he's going to make improvements. But Zalal, just like we were talking in the last fight, you're looking for guys to fade. Zalal was kind of like that for me when he came to the UFC. I picked, I picked Austin Lingo over him on the basis of, you know, Lingo was headlining cards for LFA, and Zalal had quite literally lost two fights back, right? Yeah. And uh, he, he goes out there and he pulls the upset. He moves linearly, dart, dart side to side, and shoots those takedowns, and it works against a guy like Austin Lingo. So I fade him again against Jordan Griffin, right? Fade him against Jordan Griffin. You know, the takedowns don't work against Griffin, and it is a close fight, but he, he, he squeaks that one out. Now, <laughs> I'm not stupid enough to get him over Pete Barrett, so I, at least I don't go 0-3 on this guy. But I'm waiting to fade him in that... What does he do well? He comes from a striking background. He's the Moroccan devil. He does have, I think he has a flying knee knockout of his own in the regional show. There is that glimpse of the flash. He's at Factory X Muay Thai, but he doesn't throw any volume. And you look at all these fights, right? The last fight was Su Wo Choi, 15 minutes. He lands 23. The fight with Tapuria, 15 minutes. He lands 17. The fight with Pete Barrett, where he just ragdolls Pete Barrett for three rounds, 53 significant strikes, 59 against Griffin, 31 against Lingo. It's always low output. And so he darts around a lot, but he doesn't engage a whole lot. And so these three fights with Lingo, Griffin, and Barrett, he's all of a sudden using his wrestling. Wrestling? I didn't know the guy could wrestle until he came to the UFC. So he's not a great wrestler at heart. And clearly he's not looking to strike at heart. And so the, 
Tapuria, that was great. We got we got Tapuria, I think, at slight dog money on that one. Yeah. That was great. But Tapuria is a very good fighter. The Suo Choi fight, that was where we hit a nice dog play in Wu Choi. And the whole thought process behind that one is Choi's six feet tall. He's big for the weight class. 74-inch reach, six feet tall, big for the weight class. And yeah, he's getting taken down by Gavin Tucker and Mavzar Ivloev, but uh, Zalal's not those guys. If he does not get this fight to the ground, he's going to be forced to stand with him. If he's forced to stand with this guy, who's a Korean Muay Thai champion, bronze medalist at the Worlds, an amateur Muay Thai, six feet tall, huge guy for 145, not going to go good. Woodson is almost the same identical situation. If you don't take Woodson down, which I don't think he will, and even if he does take Woodson down, you nailed this yourself, Woodson probably just gets up. He's going to have to strike with him. And Woodson's going to go out there and land 100, and Zalal's going to go out there and land 40 or 50. So he, he'll, he'll get doubled up. It's going to look better for the refs. And am I worried that Woodson all of a sudden tires out again? No, because Orosa pushed a hectic pace. He engaged him every step of the way. He, he was hurt at one point and caused Woodson to get a little overzealous. But one, he's going to learn from that. Two, being at Glory MMA and Fitness with James Krause. Definitely something they can work on. Three, he's still young. He's only 28. So I get Zalal's young himself and making improvements, but I, I think Woodson's got the higher upside. And the way these guys match up stylistically, it should be for Woodson. So he's more of a decision guy. I think he gets the decision. You've already nailed all that. Plus 130 um, for Woodson by decision. I'm in. Again, the, the fight goes the distance. I agree with that as well. And that would cover you on both sides. Zalal wins. I think he's winning a decision. But but at 2-1, to one, like not nearly as uh, as appealing, right? I do think that uh, uh, I've seen a couple of people float out there the possibility that Zalal could potentially lock up a sub as well. It's at plus 700, which I don't think is too bad if you do believe that he could do that. Uh, I don't think so, but you know, just because Zarosa subbed him last time around, I don't expect Zalal to do the same, but it is still a path of victory that we've seen work against Sean Woodson in the past. All right, sure. let's move on to the next fight here. We got a short Norris replacement. Uh, Manon Fioro going up against short Norris replacement Tabitha Ricci, uh, making her UFC debut, uh, and I think a little bit too soon. Uh, we got minus uh, 525 on the French woman and plus 415 on, I think her nickname is Baby Shark. I, I could be off on that, but uh, apparently she's the main training partner of Mackenzie Dern over there in California. She's a black house representative. Uh, it seems like she has some solid jujitsu while she is a black belt and jujitsu, a black belt in judo as well. And it seems just by watching her fight, she wants to get you to the ground. She's a, she's a buzzsaw when it comes to the striking room. And I mean that in the most complimentary way as possible. Like she just moves forward and throws winging hooks just to close the distance. And then she drags her opponents to the ground. And luckily for her, her opponents have a combined record of four and 10. So yeah, she's more than successful in those, those fights, getting these women to the ground and then finishing them. Uh, she was a minus 1700 favorite in her last two outings. That just lets you know the type of uh, competition she was facing over there in LFA. Now jumping on over to the UFC, she's running right into the sharks, right? Manon Fiero only coming into her second UFC fight, but it seems like she has a pretty bright future. I think that she could at least crack into the, top 10 if she continues to progress the way that she is but i think the main x factor in this fight is going to be the fact that we got Firo coming in at five foot seven or five foot six and you got tabitha ricci at five foot one not to mention tabitha ricci coming up a weight class here on short notice obviously not having the time to cut down uh you know well obviously uh Firo is obviously a flyweight so it would make no sense to actually go down to 115 point uh, pounds 
But I think this is a little bit too quickly for Ricci to be jumping into the UFC. Again, the level of competition that she was facing on the regional scene, nowhere near what she's going to be fighting in the UFC. So yeah, she's going to be able to head and arm throw some of these chicks or inside trip some of these chicks on the LFA scene to pull off her submissions or pull off her ground and pound victories. But I think she's going to struggle in terms of the strength here with Manol Firo. I think Firo will be successful in keeping this fight on the feet, butchering her on the feet with her striking. She is a mean striker, just as we saw in her knockout victory over Victoria Leonardo last time around. Uh, and I think that this is a great fight for her to go out there and showcase that once again. If Tabitha Ricci is not successful in getting this fight to the ground, where we still have some question marks about Firo, she is showing improvements when we have seen her forced to grapple, but has she really grappled a black belt like Tab Tabitha Ricci in the past? I just don't think so. So, uh, I, again, though, I do think that the, that Ricci will struggle with the strength here. I think she's going to struggle to get this fight to the ground. Those, those head and arm throws and stuff is not going to work on a girl this much bigger than her and this much stronger than her. And I think the short Norris nature just does not work in her favor. I do like uh, Firo here. We don't have many uh, or props out. Uh, obviously, the only one that really would be considering would be uh Firo to win inside the distance minus 140 it's always nice to get plus money on these types of props unfortunately we don't maybe when they release the ko prop it's going to be around even money plus 110 if anything i think that has some decent value because i do think that we see Firo absolutely starch her on the feet and uh yeah just butcher her so uh, i like Firo here are you giving richie any more chance than i am here yeah i think a little bit more but not a whole lot i just think listen very difficult spot you nailed it who says, geez, I got a nice little prospect here. Undefeated, right? Looks good. BJJ Black Belt. Training partner of Mackenzie Dern. Out of a reputable camp like Black House in California. Uh, got all the parts. BJJ Black Belt and Judo Black Belt. Competing internationally. And they got a nice little thing here, right? And she's competing for LFA. She's 115 pounds and she's doing extremely well. well wh why would you take that person, clearly on their way to the UFC anyways, and take a take a fight on three days notice at 125 pounds like that's like so you either have a lot of confidence in your fighter and i'm sure they do i think they just like we talked about she's got skills everywhere judo black belt bjj black belt striking's ever improving she's trying to rack up some mma experience you know little known fact is that she actually turns pro like 2013 she was 17 in, or something yeah it's crazy. i think she's like 18 or 19 but regardless it's like she turns pro 2013 wins two fights and then strictly focuses on bjj i believe i saw her compete in 2017 but she was a purple belt so i know there's this hard narrative of she's a black belt and she is but uh she just got her black belt not that long ago but similar to dern it's like they're they're progressing very quick they're very good at jiu-jitsu right so no doubt about it, she is a good BJJ black belt, but I think Fioro should be able to defend some of the attacks at the very least. And it is a tough task to be taking somebody on on three days notice in any spot, UFC debut in any spot, up a weight class in any spot. These are all difficult. She's just adding more to her plate, so it's going to be difficult. But I, I, I will give her the benefit of the doubt. You know, Fioro comes to the UFC, and <clears throat> the, you and I are both on her. But the narrative from the other side was we don't know enough about her ground game. So it looks decent in UAE Warriors. You know, she's getting takedowns. She looks very strong in the clinch. And uh, her ground and pound, pretty nasty. All this from a karate fighter. So clearly she's adding all those skills and improving herself. But what happens if she's on her back? Like, what's she going to be like in a defensive position in these grappling exchanges? So people thought that Victoria Leonardo might be able to force those grappling exchanges and wasn't. Got booted in the head. That was the end of it. We were happy with that. Cool. But we still didn't learn what we wanted to learn about Fioro. So at least this is a different spot here where it's like, if she does hit one of these judo trips, gets this fight to the ground and then peels on her, if she takes her back, not saying she ran in chokes her, maybe she does, but if she just takes her back 
Is Hyoro the type of fighter that's going to be able to get out of a body triangle? She's the type of fighter that's going to be able to scramble back to her feet? She's the type of fighter, her cardio looks good. So even if she drops one of these early rounds and then Richie starts to get tired because she's on three days notice against a larger woman, you know, I'm confident Fiero takes over rounds two and three, but it could be a little bit dicier than minus 500 would suggest to you. Minus 500, walk in the park. Richie's a little bit more credible. So the angle that I'm looking to look at this one is I think this fight, you're thinking maybe the inside the distance, I think could go the distance. The reason why I'm looking at that is, one, you've got Tabitha Ricci. She's never been finished. I know she is young in her career, but I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, low-level competition, that she can take a punch, and I don't think she's getting submitted here, so she's just going to stay out of harm's way. The fact that she's in there in short notice, that's all worrisome, but again, I think that her camp would have only put her in this in this spot if they had faith in her. And jiu-jitsu is a defensive art, so even if she is getting hurt, if she can just force this thing to the ground, even if she has to pull guard, even if she has to just, you know, survive, I think she should be able to do it. Fioro, meanwhile, she looks like the wrecking machine. She looks like the one that is going to go out there and finish opponents. But I go back to that Corinne Laframboise fight. Now, again, this is a fight that happened less than a year ago. Laframboise fought in TKO. Her grappling is half as good as Ricci's. And she's 10 seconds away from surviving after, you know, forcing some grappling exchanges and largely surviving the majority of the fight. But eventually, Fioro is over to uh, overwhelm her. I think Ricci's at a much higher level. Her jiu-jitsu is way cleaner. If she can get Fioro on top of her, she's going to take away time off the clock. Where she gets finished is if her judo is not good enough to force this thing to the ground and she stands at distance and just gets kicked all night, then we could have a, an issue. But I'm not looking to invest a ton in this one. As you mentioned, the props aren't really fully released for it yet. We only had a limited pint size. But I, I thought small action on that fight goes the distance at 155. And then that Fioro by decision is plus 240. So, again, that's I'm, I'm saying I think Fioro is going to win. But I'm also showing my respect to Ricci. And then I think a lot of people are, are you know, at 5-1. to one, That kind of feels disrespectful to me. Though I do agree Fioro should win. I had Fioro over Marina Moroz. I know a lot of people disagree with that one as well. But me too. I, I, I believe that this is someone who's making a lot of improvements. She's still very... She's not young. She's 31, right? So... Yeah. She's making those improvements because she's new to MMA, so to speak, but she's more refined in that she has a legitimate martial arts background that she's worked on for, you know, almost two decades. That's going to see the translation, but she's got to she's got to get going so far because, again, at 31, whereas Richie's the complete opposite. Like she is they, they both seemingly have six and one versus five and zero, oh, but I, I really do think that Fioro just has that experience. She has that size. She's already made the ring walk, fought in the UFC once. That's all advantageous enough to earn her this decision. And fight goes the distance at plus 155. Fioro by decision at plus 240. Those are the two angles I would be looking at. But again, this is not one that I'm looking to hammer a ton on, I don't think. Shout out to our guy, George from Greece. Here he's saying there's only two women that deserve to be minus 625 in the UFC and they're not named Fioro. She'll win, but there's no value betting-wise. And I absolutely agree with yeah, him, right? Like, I, I think this line is a little bit too wide. I wouldn't be surprised if it busts the parlays, especially if this fight hits the ground, right? If we see Richie pull on that that black belt and uh, Fioro has nothing off her back, then uh, people who with, you know, just aimlessly parlaying Fioro here are going to be very... Fiorious. Fiorious. That's actually pretty good. I know it sounds like that. What is this guy doing? That was cheeky. That was really good. I respect that. I tried. I tried. Yeah, that was good. Let's move on to the next fight here. We got uh, Alan Patrick going up against Mason Jones. You want to talk about Chuck? That's exactly what my guy Mason Jones is bringing here. We got minus 275 on the Welsh uh, Mason Jones and plus 235 on Alan Patrick, who seems to be trying to make a career resurgence by changing his training camp over there to Sanford MMA as well. I believe he's training at Orlando MMA, BJJ or, or something like that. Um, 
I, I, I haven't seen anything from him uh, at Fusion XL, which is where he spent the majority of his UFC career. But now he's over there at Sanford MMA trying to refine that striking because that seems to be uh, the weakest part of his game. You know, he makes it... It makes no bones about it in terms of what he wants to do. He wants to get this fight to the ground. Like his striking is pretty much predicated on him closing the distance, latching his arms around you, and then dragging you to the ground. And if it doesn't work that way, more than likely he goes out there and gets outstruck. And Mason Jones, man, talk about a debut. Even in a loss, you talk about a guy that rises his or raises his stock, especially against a high high caliber opponent like Mike Davis. Uh, both guys had plenty of success on uh, in that fight, rocking, hurting, and dropping each other numerous times. Obviously, Mike Davis comes out on the winning end, but we see some great things from Mason Jones. Decent takedown defense, decent get-up ability. Uh, I believe he's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu as well has some heavy power in his hands he came over from cage warriors as the double champ but i don't rate it too heavily because he never defended either of them he just won one title they push him up to the next one (laughs) yeah exactly he's the connor of cage warriors pretty much (laughs) even though connor fought over there and cage warriors but i I like what i see from mason jones i think he has a solid future in the ufc especially with the way that he fights especially with how entertaining he fights too I think Patrick is going to be uh, is going to struggle to get him to the ground, and even if he does get him to the ground, I think he's going to struggle to keep him there. And as long as this fight stays on the feet, you got to think that Mason Jones just puts some pressure on him, uh, but you know lands big shots. I think this fight could potentially uh, you know end inside the distance as well. I actually like Mason Jones to win inside the distance here, probably even by KO. Uh, Jones by KO is plus one hundred. Uh, I doubt we see Jones sub him, but that's actually plus 1,700, which I think is kind of disrespectful for a guy who has a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. And uh, Alan Patrick seems to have a sketchy gas tank. If he goes out there and absolutely gasses himself out by, you know, end of round two, early round three, I wouldn't be surprised to see Mason Jones slap something onto him and cast a plus 1,700 ticket. But I do think it's going to come down from either ground and pound Mm. or a standing knockout finish. I do think Jones finishes him here. Uh, We got the over-under at two and a half. I'd like the under two and a half at minus 115. Uh, and yeah, I, I really like Jones in this spot. Uh, I think the line is slightly wide, but I do think it's uh, it, it's justified to a certain extent. Uh, so I do like Jones here. I do like him to get the finish as well. So like I said, Jones by KO plus 100, under 2.5, minus 115. And this last thing I'll say, possible round three prop here. Again, uh, Patrick, bad cardio, could start to slow down. And it seems like the public is already on it because it's only at plus 850. Usually we get four digits here uh, for, for those. Good, uh, though, you know? It's, it's not bad. Good. It's not yeah, bad. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do like uh, Jones to get the late finish here. So uh, how are you seeing this one? Yeah, dude, I agree. And you know, you know me. You know me best. I love me my decisions. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think this thing's going the distance, my friend. Nah. Yeah, yeah. I, listen, Alan Patrick is so one-dimensional in what he does, and unfortunately, he's not Russian, so he can't get away with the game plan of just mauling guys to the ground forever. Because as he progressed through the ranks, that game plan stopped working, and when that game plan stopped working, he has no. He has no plan B. Remember when he'd show up to the weigh-ins and do a standing backflip and yeah. just shred it up and be like, oh my God, Capoeira background. And he'd go out there and just land these takedowns. But that's been his career. So you look at the the whole string of wins, right? He beats Garrett Whiteley, who uh, he did finish, but he takes down. But the John McDessie fight, he gets outstruck 61 to 40, but he gets those two takedowns. The Maribach Taysumov fight, he can't take down Taysumov. No. So he gets knocked out. But then Damian Brown, five takedowns. You know, and he only lands 25 strikes. Over the course of the fight, there's no striking, there's no ground and pound, five takedowns. Stevie Ray, five takedowns. Demir Hadzevic, nine takedowns. Now again, Stevie Ray, he lands seven takedowns, or seven, uh, seven significant strikes over 15 minutes. Five takedowns, seven significant strikes. Okay. Demir Hadzevic, nine takedowns, 28 significant strikes. So... That's my issue with him, is that when he was taking those guys down, that's how he was winning. Now, when he ran into Scott Holtzman, Scott Holtzman's not what you would consider uh, an elite wrestler. 
Can he wrestle? Sure. And he trains out of the MMA lab, so he's worked with a lot of wrestlers. Him just quite simply keeping that fight standing. You see Alan Patrick get extremely desperate. You see Alan Patrick uh, all of a sudden, you know, the fight doesn't, he's taking damage. And then by the third round, that's that third round prop, he gets plowed away with the elbow. Now, the fight with Bobby Green, shit, it's the same thing. Bobby Green is not what you would consider a great wrestler at all, but he but he can wrestle. Certainly, he's got a funky style and is difficult to take down. When he's not able to take down Bobby Green, he's just getting mauled up by Bobby Green. Now, the difference there is Bobby Green hasn't finished a sandwich since 2013. <laughs> and in fact, the sandwich he finished, James Krause, he might have kicked him in the balls twice. It's debatable. You can watch it if you want. It's debatable. Uh, so yeah, Bobby Green doesn't finish him, sure. But but now you're running into Mason Jones. Uh, we're we're back into the Holtzman problem. In fact, you've got the Holtzman problem times two. You got Mason Jones, who he's got a really good get up game. He does have good wrestling. So even if Alan Patrick's able to get into the ground, Jones is getting back up. Jones pushes the kind of pace bigger than Holtzman, bigger than Bobby Green. He comes after you. Alan Patrick's gas tank shouldn't be able to match, and he's got some power. The two wins before he came into the UFC for Cage Warriors, he's knocking these guys out in the first round. The striking looks like it's improving, and he's still only in his early 20s at the time. Now that he's in the UFC, he's 26 years old. He's at Team Alpha Male. That fight with Mike Davis, my God, what a fight. What an excellent fight. This kid's 26 years old, making his UFC debut as an undefeated European champion, and he puts on a fight of that caliber. Huge. Loses. But again, I like when these undefeated young prospects lose the first time because you... When you see a guy with seven or eight losses, it's like, okay, either he's not getting it or he's one of these guys that's like 36 and 12. Like, that's cool by me. You, know, you fight that many times, you're going to pick up yeah. losses. <clears throat> but for a young guy, 10 and 0, 11 and 0, 12 and 0, again, it goes back to the Tabitha Ricci and the Minero Fiorio and all these younger fighters. It's like, where can they get exploited? When you lose seven times, we know how to exploit this fighter. In this case, it's like, where did he get exploited? N nothing other than experience. Just needed a little more experience. He's in there with a banger like Davis, who's already fought top guys in the UFC like Sodi Youssef in the Contender Series, came in, made a good, good name for himself, you know, training with guys in Tiger Muay Thai. That's a high-level fight. Jones looked, at, and I and I did bet Jones. He was a sizable enough underdog. I was tempted in it. I really liked what I saw in the regional scene. He came up short, but still, a fight where you lose and your stock goes up. I, I, I'm in on that. Alan Patrick, the only thing I could think of, whereas this guy might fool me and come come Saturday night, is uh, like you said, he always at Sanford MMA now, and he's a great athlete, and maybe he's added some things. But but here's where that's not a concern of mine. He's 37 years old, man. So. When he was getting those takedowns back in the day, you know, he's being Garrett White, he's being Demir Hadzivik, he's being John McDessie, he's still 32-33. As an athlete, he's still kind of in that prime of his career. These later fights with Holtzman and Bobby Green, he's not as explosive. He's not all of a sudden going to become some great striker. And even if he went out there and his striking looked freaking on point, it was legit, it was good. He's not he's not throwing anything more than 50-60. He's not landing anything more than 50-60. His gas tank won't keep up. And Jones is going to take his best shots, even if he has best shots, which I don't think he does. He'll take them, he'll walk through them, he'll break this guy down. So so the Jones by TKO seems like the move, and it's plus 100. And the Jones by submission, you know, even though it's certainly possible, 1,700, right? But the Jones inside the distance, minus 110. It's 10 points off from the TKO prop. So I'm not going to take the Jones by TKO. I'm going to take the Jones inside the distance, 10 points worse just because MMA is a crazy sport. And like you mentioned, crazier things have happened. He's a brown belt. He's at Team Alpha Male. If he gets Alan Patrick tired, if he gets Alan Patrick hurt, and he gets Alan Patrick shooting in desperation takedown, he's going to Alpha Male guillotine this guy. So 
the possibility does exist, and for that reason, I'd rather just take the inside distance over the TKO. But I'm in agreement. So I got Mason Jones. He's going to be a top ticket parlay kind of guy for me this week, and uh, I'm excited for his future going beyond this. Yeah, I think he has a very bright future inside the UFC. Again, you don't often say that for somebody who loses in their UFC debut, but that guy's stock definitely rose in that fight, and hopefully it continues to rise with the W this weekend over Alain Patrick. All right, speaking about aging Brazilians, we got Francisco Trinaldo, 42 years old, young, or old, young. Uh, maybe let me, let me reword that. 42 years young, Mr. Francisco Trinaldo, now training at American Top Team, going up against uh, Mr. Uh, Muslim Salikov. In terms of odds, we got minus uh, 2.4. 45 for Muslim Salikov plus 205 for Francisco Trinaldo. Not many props out for this one, too, but there's only one prop that I need to see to actually make a little bit of a wager on this. And I like me some Francisco Trinaldo at plus 385 via decision, baby, because this fight, it's going to be a close one. This one's going to go to the judges' scorecards. Both guys are low volume, low output, and I have no idea why Salikov is minus 245 the way that he is, right? They, I think it's that Russian tax. They see that off at the end of the name, They're like, oh, Obviously, he's going to win, right? Or against a 42-year-old Brazilian. This 42-year-old Brazilian is on a three-fight winning streak over guys like Bobby Green. Uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember the last one, uh, Jay Herbert, a fight that was very close. He got hurt and rocked in some of those exchanges as well. Comes back and shows off that legendary Brazilian power, knocking out Jay Herbert in the last round. Um, I still think he has something in the tank. He's one of those ageless Brazilians that can still go out there and you know land some big heavy shots. He seems to have some decent durability, and again, the ability to keep fights close and and uh, the way that Salikov fights, I think that this fight is mispriced massively. Like I, I think that it's going to be both these guys just staring at each other, just throwing strikes every now and then, and then whoever has the better moments is probably going to get the decision. But I'd rather be holding that plus two fifteen parlay or uh, ticket on the underdog rather than the minus two forty five minus. 50 on the favorite here um salikov when you actually watch his fights like yeah he finished nordine taleb and yeah he finished ricky rainey got subbed by alex garcia you know alex garcia as well as i do not really much of a submission threat right he's more of those like guys that kind of like some wing four and throws his big shots so that was a big red flag to begin with goes out there as a minus 210 favor over ricky rainey gets the job done finishes nordine taleb as well but then his next two fights very close fights loriano storopoli largely an inactive fight outside of that second round where salikov was able to hurt him and then lunge on him and possibly even got a 10-8 on certain cards there but again majority of the, that fight they're just staring at each other not really throwing much the alessio zaleski dos santos fight he lost that fight uh, you can try to change my mind on that one i thought Sal uh, uh, mr uh, zaleski dos santos definitely deserved to win that fight very close fight again low output both guys not really throwing much i thought zaleski deserved to win that fight so once again I think Salikov just really fights super close to his opponent's level, no matter what. Unless he finishes them, it goes to a decision. Not uh, Neither guy is throwing a lot of heat. Not a lot of guys are throwing a lot of volume. And in that case, I'm going to be going with the Trinaldo side of things. Again, the same guy that goes out there and just waits for his moments. Again, he's in a value cow Thai guy um, that, that used to train uh, over there. Now he's changed his training camp over to ATT. And I, I don't think it's more so to to improve his game. I think it's more so to just get better training partners, right? American Top Team has a plethora of guys for him to go out there and train with and try to upgrade his game just off of that, just getting experience and, and valuable time with other training partners rather than who he's been training with for the majority of his career. Let's go out there and just try to change it up a little bit and see if we can continue this three-fight winning streak. So yeah, I think this fight's going to be close. I'd rather be on the underdog here in Francisco Trinaldo. Uh, plus 385, like I said, is the decision prop. I think both guys are hella durable. I think they're both going to be going to the 15-minute mark here. And again, I like Trinaldo here. I think he's going to land the better shots. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, so Francisco Trinaldo is 42 years old. 
and he has been fighting professionally for 16 years, and he has 32 professional fights, and motherfucking never been knocked out, Holmes. This guy has got one hell of a chin. You do not go out there and knock out Francisco Trinaldo. I think that's a hell of a stat in that, how does Muslim Salikov get the, his victories? He usually goes out there and relies on that power because he is a, a low-output guy. I mean, he's only looking to land 40 significant strikes in there and hopefully hit you with a spinning back kick to the body that'll crumple you over. When he debuted in the UFC, dude, I got fooled. I got backdoored, <laughs> and I got my apple pie shit in big time. Because, yeah, you, you see him come oh, Russian? Last name? O-V? And then I was like, why is his nickname King of Kung Fu? Red flag number one. I like my OV Russians wrestling and wrestling <laughs> lots, you know? And if they don't wrestle, then hopefully they're Sambo champions instead. Good enough. But like Kung Fu, that was red flag number one. Red flag number two. He left Russia to go train at Nova Union. You don't do that. You leave your Brazil to go to Russia, right? Go train your wrestling, not the other way around. It was like a huge, and then sure enough, Alex Garcia of all people. Uh, Alex Garcia is like a two-to-one underdog. Yeah. Goes out there, just takes him down at will, takes his back. That rear naked choke, he doesn't even try to fight the hands. He just accepts it. And uh, would you, you would know this, but Alex Garcia goes on to lose his next four fights and effectively retire. So yes. he was operating at a very low level to begin with. He's, he's one in five in his last six. That one win, Muslim Salikov. Now, Muslim goes on a great little four-fight winning streak. And I'll admit, he does look like he has made improvements. His hips look a lot stronger. His takedown defense probably has made improvements. However, who's taking him down? Ricky Rainey? What? <laughs> no, not pretty Ricky, right? He's a striker. He's a primary striker, more of a Bellator caliber guy. We got Nordin Taleb, who is a striker. We've got Larry Onosteropoli, we'll talk about later, who is a effectively as striker as it gets and we've got Alescu uh, uh, Elizu sorry I always fuck it up El Elizu Zalescu de Santos nailed who, it again dude he's a capoeira guy like he's a striker they're all they're all strikers all these men are strikers what would happen if Muslim Salikov was to fight a wrestler again or at least somebody that could mix in the wrestling and that's where Trinaldo's interesting the guy can strike never been knocked out as I mentioned has fancied himself a lot of good striking bouts with a lot of good guys. But he does have that X factor that he can mix in a couple takedowns here and there. He's taken down some good guys. He never wrestles. He never shoots three, four, five takedowns in a fight because that would be too taxing on his cardio. He's one of these 42. Everything he does is with purpose. You know, He's not throwing combinations just to field you out. Like He throws big power because it's big power. Try to clinch you up. Try to take you down, right? One or two takedowns will do the trick. Power grappling from the top, conserve that energy. It all plays out to a close fight, a competitive fight, and a fight that probably goes the distance. And like you said, do I want a Muslim Salikov ticket while I got a sweat going on? Or do I want a 385 by decision on Trinaldo while that sweat's going? That's what I feel pretty good to me as far as I'm concerned. So I I'm going to agree with a lot of those points. The last thing I want to mention with... Um, with Muslim Salikov as well. It's like, okay, well, he is making these improvements and he's getting a little bit better marginally and this and that and all that. Fair enough. So he's been off a year. Now he pulls off, he pulls out of that first fight with Claudio Silva. I don't know why he withdraws, but he withdraws. What's concerning is it was a free win over Claudio Silva. You could have two broken feet and still win the fight, <laughs> but he pulls out. So something's wrong with them. So then he gets booked against Santiago Ponzinibbio. So they're not happy with him. They rebook him from Claudio Silva to Santiago Ponzinibbio. Like, what the hell is this? But they rebook him and he pulls out. And you see right on Tapology, <clears throat> Salikov withdraws due to ongoing COVID-19 symptoms, right? So he gets COVID and then pulls out of a subsequent rebooked fight because of the lingering effects. The same thing that's happening to Chemayev. Chemayev's pulled out of a series of fights because of lingering effects. You go to training, you're like, holy shit, I can't breathe. So... 
Has he been training? Has he been wrestling hard in the gym? Has he been prepared properly? All shit that I would rather have a plus 385 Trinaldo by decision ticket instead. So again, I think the two ways of looking at it is the over two and a half minus 160. I think it covers you either side. And then I think you take the Trinaldo by decision. Could Trinaldo sub him? Yeah, absolutely. Could Trinaldo knock him out? I don't think I, I don't I don't think that's the move, but he could sub him if he got him to the ground. But I think he I think he wins this decision. If Salikov wins this fight, he's not subbing Trinaldo. And again, could he knock Trinaldo out? Might happen to Trinaldo eventually. But if you're going to tell me 16 years, 32 pro fights, a, a decade in the UFC, never happened? Yeah, I, I don't think Salikov's the first guy all of a sudden. So, yeah, I think this thing goes the over 2.5 on minus 160, and, I would, and I'm going to have a feeler out Trinaldo by decision, uh, plus 385. I think we're on the same page, bud. I, I don't even, like, I know this is a prop show, but there's no need to be greedy here. Just take... Trinaldo yeah, plus 200. Yeah, yeah, I think that's even a great price as is, right? Right, right. Exactly. Okay, uh, sorry, sorry but it, just the last thing, uh, when you look at his little win streak, like you say, he's on a three-fight win streak, he's going to ATT, okay? This is this is a good little narrative. Him versus Bobby Green, right? Which he should have fucking killed Bobby Green. He wins the fight. He's a minus 150. Then he gets booked against John McDessie. This is a walkover for him. He's a minus 150 over John McDessie. Weird. Weird. Then they give him Jay Herbert. Now, this is the easiest fight the man's had in his entire professional MMA career. And he's in even money. Or I think he's minus 110. I think he's the underdog closing. Because the narrative's always, well, he's old and his gas tank might be a little sus. Like, the narrative's always there and they always give you a nice line on him. And this is this is no different. What you're getting is you're getting a nice line on him is exactly what you're getting. Absolutely blasphemous of a line. And you're damn right I'm taking a full advantage of that this weekend. All right, let's move on to the next fight here because we got a plethora of fights to still get through. We got Tanner Bozer going up against Alir Latifi. Uh, some chalk here on Tanner Bozer coming in at minus 185. Some money obviously coming in on Alir Latifi now since that plus 160 but bozer did open up minus 255 people love some canadian bozer and they love that mullet but uh once you actually start digging into this fight you think it's a lot closer than that minus 260 minus 240 that he was currently or that he was earlier on um the main thing that we've been seeing from tanner bozer is just striking exchanges right nobody really has <clears throat> pushed him in the grappling room, at least in the UFC, or at least in his recent couple fights. The one that I really had to dig deep into to find where Russia. he's actually been challenged was Russia. Yeah, his yeah. fight against Denis Smolderov, where he gets taken down and he has a lot of trouble in terms of getting back to his feet. He can't really handle it. Uh, but that was over four or five years ago that he had to deal with that, that fight specifically, I should say. Can we 100% say that he's made improvements on that? No, we can't. Like, you can assume it, but until we see it in the cage, you can't be like, okay, he's going to stuff all the takedowns that Ilir Latifi is going to be throwing at him because if that's not Ilir Latifi's game plan here, I don't know who the fuck's coaching him because that's the way that you're going to beat Tanner Bozer in this fight. You're not going to outfall you, man. Uh, Bozer has a really good chin. I'd be surprised if he knocked him out. Um, and again, Bozer very mobile, likes to use his leg kicks, likes to stay on the outside. And I think we'll see the same approach from him in this fight. It's just the threat of the grappling that gives me question marks here because the TV can be very successful with it. Just watch the Derek Lewis fight, right? Got a lot of success in that fight. It was just, he was just not able to hold him down long enough in that third round because, you know, we know Derek Lewis. He gets held down. It's like he's just trying to conserve his energy, just try to get a little bit more energy back. And then when he has enough, just fucking goes onto his belly hand knees right back to his feet and then exactly then he yeah. fucking rains hell on his opponents just like he did against Sir Latifi at the end of that fight uh and that uh, Latifi loses that fight but again very close fight because he's successful with his takedowns and taking down Derek Lewis is you know 
Derek Lewis doesn't have the greatest takedown defense, but that's a behemoth of a man, especially considering you learned Latifi used to fight down at 205. But Latifi has settled in very nicely at, uh, at fucking heavyweight, the weight that he's, I believe he came in at like 240 or 250 for that fight. Huge human being, very thick guy, sledgehammer to a T. And I think he won't have much... Uh, resistance in taking down Bozer if he's able to close the distance efficiently enough, get his hands around him, and then, you know, drag him to the ground. That's what's giving me pause here in terms of playing this fight at all. I don't like Latifi's gas tank either. I think he does start to gas later in fights, and I think that Bozer has a really good gas tank. And I think that we see Bozer learn from his mistakes in the Arlovsky fight, which was, he was a little bit not enough volume, right? Like, they, they, we're, we're used to seeing volume from Bozer, you know, staying active, leg kicks and punches, whatever the fuck it is. But he just allowed Arlovsky to have more moments in that fight, which is why he lost that fight. So I'm not ready to write off Bozer immediately, right? A lot of people are going to write him off because he lost to uh, an, a late, uh, you know, uh, an Andre Arlovsky. But I'm not ready to do that. But again, I'm not ready to bet on him here either as a minus 185 favorite because of the question marks regarding the grappling here. However, I do see this fight going the full 15 minutes, and that's probably where my money would be if I uh, uh, bet on this fight at all. Minus 140 for the over two and a half, not too bad. And even Bozer to win by decision, uh, plus 190, not too bad. But on the flip side, you could do Latifi by decision as well, plus 365. I do think this sees the scorecards. Now it just depends on which style is more uh, effective. Is it the striking, the stick and move style? of Bozer, or is it the grappling heavy approach that we're going to see from Ilir Latifi? I'm going to go with the Canadian, and that's not a Canadian bias. That's just me, you know, watching the tape and thinking this is what's going to happen. But I would not be surprised if Latifi gets his hand raised with the grapple heavy approach. Which side are you leaning on more here? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you. But remember how last fight you said don't get greedy. I think that's where my mind is here. Instead of trying to chase this Bozer side or this Latifi side, I think you just take that fight goes the distance at minus one twenty, and it hopefully covers you both sides. I'll admit Bozer should win on the basis that he's actually a heavyweight. You know, and like he's a big guy. He's got a big frame for the weight class, and he's very mobile, good striking. Good striking in the sense that he's got good volume for a heavyweight. He likes the leg kicks. He likes to kick a lot. I believe he does come from a karate base, and you see it with that mobility and that ability to kick a lot. How he knocked out Felipe Linz and Rafael Pessoa, that's not really the kind of fighter he is. He is yeah. heavyweight. They hit you, you're going to fall over. And in Linz and Pessoa's case, you hit them, they fall over. Um, but but again, he is more of a points-type guy that's just going to chip away at you. And in the Arlovsky fight, Arlovsky is currently that as well. He is a points-based guy that chips away at you. And Maybe Bozer had too much respect for him. I don't know. I thought Bozer won the fight, but it was way too close. Like It's it's what the judges are looking at. Bozer's slight little leg kicks, or are they looking at Arlovsky's slight little hand combinations? And in the end, they gave it to Andre Arlovsky's slight hand combinations. But... Can this guy improve and get better? I do believe so. The question mark is, like you said, he fights on the Canadian regional scene and he fights almost no wrestlers, right? He now goes to Russia. He fights a couple wrestlers here and there. He loses the Vakahov fight. He loses the Dennis Smolderov fight. Uh, it doesn't look like, you know, wrestling. It looks like if he would have stayed in Russia for another five fights, he would have lost four of them probably with, with takedown defense issues. But now you come to the UFC. There's different heavyweights for you to fight. He makes a good name out of himself. He loses a surreal gun. No big deal picks up the victories, picks up some bonus money, things are going well. Here's my issue. You take Tanner Bozer, a mobile heavyweight, with his striking background, and you put him, I hate to say it because I hate, you know, like everyone says you don't have to jump gyms. But like if this guy was at ATT, if this guy was at, you know, AKA, if this guy was at a gym where he'd be wrestling all the time, and I knew for certain he'd be able to keep the fight standing, you'd feel a lot better about it. Instead, he works a full-time job, and he's training in Edmonton. His chief training partner is KB Bular who we've seen fight in the UFC two times now, he doesn't have these high-level wrestlers that are going to push him 
the way that somebody in the UFC eventually is going to. Now, in this spot against Ilya Latifi, Latifi's a small guy. He, not only is he not really a heavyweight, well, he's not, definitely not a heavyweight, he's not really a 205er. Like, he's got the frame of a middleweight, but he's so jacked up, he fights at 205 and gets away with it, I guess. And at heavyweight, it's almost comical. Like, you see him at the weigh-ins and it's a joke. But again, what he is able to do is go out there and get takedowns. We know that he's a strong powerhouse-type wrestler. He's scored multiple takedowns in a, the majority of his fights. And uh, again, that's not the issue. It's that when he does get the fight to the ground, he's a little fire hydrant. It's hard to get him off you. It's such a low center of gravity, you'd have to really push this guy off. Now, Lewis is a huge guy, and when Lewis wants to get up, he gets up. As far as getting Gabe Gonzaga off, you ain't no easy task, right? When when Lewis decides it's time I want to stand up now, he just seemingly does. It's crazy. Even DC had to take him down a few times because Lewis would just stand back up. Like, he has the ability to do that. But I don't see that out of Tanner Bozer. So if Latifi gets those same takedowns against that he did against Lewis, he holds him down. But that Lewis fight, 15 minutes, early Latifi lands five significant strikes. <laughs> so what it comes down to is who are the judges? Because we see this week in, week out, some judges like wrestling, some judges, they want something out of the wrestling. If Bozer lands half a dozen kicks and a couple shots and then gets taken down and smothered and nothing happens, well, I don't know who wins the round, right? Again, it comes down to who the three judges are. Latifi's live as an underdog. Latifi at that kind of price as a decision play all does make sense to me. But man, he's 37. He's five foot ten, and that's being generous. He's not a heavyweight. He has very questionable cardio. Yeah, it's it's all not looking good. The savior here is the dude went 15 minutes with Derek Lewis and took some shots, man. He took yeah. some shots against Derek Lewis. And it's like, well, he has been knocked out. It's like, okay, well, who? Full news to me. <laughs> no time. No time. He's got tons of power, right? It's like, well, well, who else has knocked him out? It's like Ryan Bader. Dude, He sh that knee right up the middle? Ooh. Come on. Who does that not knock Nasty. out? And it's like, and he got body kicked by Jan Blakovic, the current world champion. So it's like. I think I'm going to give him a pass, you know? Even though Bozer's a heavyweight, don't get me wrong. Bozer's not Derek Lewis. Yeah. This guy took his best shots. At best, Bozer wins a decision. At best, Latifi does take him down. Latifi wins a decision. So I'm going to have the decision. And if Carla Esparza would not have had that TKO over Jan, <laughs> I would do the classic bet both sides. But my God, she ran right through her like a hot knife. Who expected that, though? Right through butter. Right yeah. through butter. Uh, so so maybe I have a little bit of reserve about betting both sides. But if you did bet both sides, in a theoretical world, you have Bozer wins on a $100 bet, you would win 90 bucks. And then if Latifi pulled the thing off, I mean, you're looking at like $285 profit, right? It would be, it would be nice either side. But again, sometimes you got to expect the unexpected and that's what happened with Esparza so I have to take a lesson out of it yeah no I I, I was very stunned that Carlos Esparza was actually able to get the finish last week I don't think I think that would have been a, a clean sweep for both of us if Carlos Esparza actually got that uh, decision there rather than the, uh, the the TKO victory that was that was insane I, she killed her man she didn't I just know, like TKO I know. or it's like if they I was happy she games, won if they fought 10 times she yeah. would have won 10 times like yeah. I don't see an argument against that like even if yeah. she slipped she would have just gotten up and taken her down and smashed her Jeez, like, that was insane I was happy I was on the money line there at least so that I at least saved my night alright let's move on to the next one speaking of women we have a flyweight scrap coming up here between Montana De La Rosa and the lack of violence queen, Ariane Lipsky, who just does not seem to bring that heat over that she had over there in KSW, absolutely fallen flat on her face since coming to the UFC. Comes in as a minus 250 favorite against Joanne Caldwell in a debut, loses. Comes in as a minus 250 favorite against Molly McCann, loses. 
beats Isabella de Padua, who takes the fight on less than 36 hours notice, probably even less than 24 hours notice, uh, and has a fight on her hands, right? She wins the fight, but you see de Padua taking her down with relative ease. Uh, obviously, de Padua fights, I believe, at a lower weight class, not to mention you know, she was not ready to fight. I think she was there to actually corner one of her uh, one of her teammates, uh, and uh, she ends up taking the fight on short notice. Uh, good for good for Lipsy. She gets the win there. Next fight, she uh, knee bars uh, Luana Carolina, who I don't rank that highly either. And then she goes out there and loses to Antonina Nurmagomedov, apparently, because uh, anybody that wants to go out there and take down uh, Ariane Lipsky, they're going to be able to. And what do we have here? Oh, Montana Del Rosa, former wrestler from high school. And I believe, if not, I'm not sure if she actually went to college for wrestling, but uh, I believe she had a kid nice and early, right out of high school or something like that. With uh, um, Nice and early. Nice and early, apparently. Uh, But uh, yeah, I think that derails her wrestling career but she still shows some good wrestling chops inside the ufc especially when she's not dealing with girls that are like viviani arujo who are able to stuff those takedowns and then absolutely butcher on the feet but silver lining in that viviani arujo fight that great the girl has great durability she took her biggest shots and was still chugging for her, her knee, nose was leaking all over the place she's still moving forward showing off some decent striking of her own getting her own shots off as well uh but obviously viviani arujo the much better fighter in that uh in that situation she gets her hand raised the Myro bueno silva fight we saw some good things from uh in that fight too in terms of being able to secure takedowns even later in the fight even after she's getting lit up on the feet she's getting these fights to the ground and having success on top obviously that fight goes to a draw if i'm not mistaken but bueno silva actually got a point taken away in that fight as well Ariane Lepsky cannot defend a takedown for her life, it seems like, right? I believe on UFC stats, she has a 45% takedown defense rate. That's not going to cut it against a girl like uh, Montana Doloroso, who has great durability, great cardio. Obviously, now trained there over there, uh, I believe, full-time up in Colorado at Team Elevation. Um yeah, her takedowns are going to be there, and I believe if that's I believe if that's what she wants to do, she's going to be able to get this fight to the ground. Now, Lipsky, obviously train, changing training camps, going over there to the American top team, but I don't care how much she's drilling takedown defense at that camp. I don't think it's going to help her here because I think that you know it's not going to take one training camp for you to completely shore up your takedown defense, especially when girls like Joanne Caldwell and Molly McCann are able to take you down with relative ease. Uh, I think Montana Del Rosa cruises here. I think she faces the least amount of resistance on this entire card. I think she takes on Lipsky with ease. I don't think that Lipsky is bringing half as much uh, ferocity as she had from a KSW days. I don't know if she was on the sauce back there or what it was, but she's just not hurting people with the with the striking like she used to back in the day. And uh, I think that whatever she's going to throw at Delarosa, Delarosa is going to be able to eat. Delarosa will walk through it, close the distance, and get this fight to the ground and grind her out. Now I'm just kind of I'm stumped between the decision and submission prop here. Lipsky has not been submitted in her career, if I'm not mistaken. I believe she has eight losses on her career and hasn't been submitted one time. Or sorry, six losses on her career hasn't been submitted one time. Uh, but Montana, you know, even when she's on top, she's not a crazy lay-in prayer. Like if there is an opportunity for a submission, she will try to seek it, right? Whether it's the arm triangle or whatever it might be. If she gets the back, she's going to go for the rear naked choke. But I expect this fight to majority for the majority of it play out on the ground. Um, I, I ultimately have settled on the decision prop. I think Delarosa would just play it safe as much as possible. Um, maintain that top position, absolutely pulmer, uh, pulverize uh, Lipsky from on top. And I just don't think that Lipsky has the get-up game or the jujitsu off of her back to threaten Delarosa at all. So, yeah. I really like Del Rosa here, if you can't tell. I'm going Del Rosa by, uh, by decision at plus 115. I think that's a pretty good line. Uh, and if you do want to get crazy with it, for the hell of it, uh, uh, what is it? Del Rosa by submission, I believe, is in the plus 300-ish range. Uh, Del Rosa plus 310. So uh, I think it could happen either way, but I think the more likely outcome is the decision. How are you seeing this one? 
Yeah, okay, so again, I love me some decision props, but this one I don't feel comfortable with. I think Della Rosa would be live. Even like you said, you like these third-round finish props. Like, I think she's probably late for a, a finish the later this thing goes. When you look at Anton Antonina Shevchenko, Antonina Shevchenko's not exactly one to finish opponents. You go back in her Muay Thai career, mostly decisions. You look at her MMA career. I know she won on Contender Series by uh, TKO due to due to uh, knees to the clinch. The prior one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight straight decision victories prior to that contended series fight. The fight with Jinyan Kim decision, you know, Lucy Putalova, she got a rear naked choke in Lipsky, she got the ground and pound. Like you said, you know, Nurmagomedov, she's working on those ground skills, but that's operating at a really low level. Like the fact that she was able to TKO her, like I, I do have a problem with that. <clears throat> so now you got Montana De La Rosa. She's theoretically a better wrestler than Antonina Shevchenko. She's got better top game than Antonina Shevchenko. This girl, I believe she's only a brown belt. Her husband, Mark De La Rosa, is a BJJ black belt, but she's made a lot of improvements in the grappling. She's an elevation fight team, has great cardio. The striking's improving a lot. And it's important to go back to that Viviana Arroyo fight like you were talking about where she comes out in those first two rounds and gets battered. And then in the third round, she's all over her. By the numbers, she outstrikes Viviana Arroyo 85 to 82. In that third round, she finally succeeds in taking her down, and she starts to put a little bit of ground and pound on her, but her face is busted and she's tired. And that's a quality fighter in Viviana Arroyo, right? When I look at this same spot here, I'm like, if she's got that kind of grit and tenacity, keeps coming at her, does get the fight to the ground, and tries to open up with some ground and pound, this is a girl that just got TKO'd by Valentina Shevchenko, so certainly it is possible. Looking at the inside the distance prop for De La Rosa, it's plus 240. So people don't expect it to happen, but there's multiple paths here. One, the grappling. She could snack up a, a submission. And two, the TKO, where it's just keep keep flattered, get her down, um, and just keep pounding away. Now, when I look at Montana De La Rosa, it's like, you know, for a girl that did wrestle in high school and was good in high school and wrestled a little bit collegiately, I believe, uh... Her wrestling is a little bit underwhelming in the UFC, but you look at the list of opponents, it's like um, Viviana Arroyo has strong hips, man, especially for the first two rounds. And uh, Mara Buena Silva, her last time out, you know why she lost that point? Because she grabbed the fence. Because oh, Montana yeah. De La Rosa had her down. Yeah. And in, and in the second round, I believe she got her down as well. But then, you know, Buena Silva gets up and then she just starts to hammer her and hurt her and that's where the striking di discrepancy is there Lipsky figures to have a striking advantage although she's not a big Brazilian bruiser she's more of like a Brazilian finesse striker so whereas you know Buena Silva sitting down on her punches and Viviana Arroyo sitting down on her punches I don't necessarily see that same power coming back here from Lipsky Lipsky if anything likes to clinch the problem is when she clinches up she's getting taken down when she's getting taken down she appears to be a fish out of water so again I, I love betting decision props but this one if anything I almost feel like De La Rosa inside the distance is live and in terms of the money line like it is women's MMA and it is Montana De La Rosa so like do I do I put this on my parlays high up like I, I actually don't want to but she will end up on the parlays at some point. It's just, uh, even though I agree she's got the style and she should win, it's Montana La Rosa. Like, what am I supposed to do? Put a whole bunch of confidence in there? Like, come on, anything could happen. But I do agree with the points. Do so it, I think Cody. That, do I think it. she gets a fight to the ground. Dude, I don't know, man. Don't know. <laughs> Pat, Pat Mayo's always got this thing where he's like, just bet the heavy underdog chick. And it's just like, no, Pat, that's not how... <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Not, not how it works. And then, uh, yeah, he, uh, he got that... Maria what, Agapova. <laughs> oh, Shannon Dobson. He, yes, and he was all over it. He was like, I'm betting Shannon Dobson. I'll, uh, you'll see. You'll see. And it was like, okay, pal. And, you know, and he, anyways, he does this all the time and he hits them. 
he hits them slightly less than not, but they're always big plus monies. So, like, he's in the green on it. This, to me, screams the same thing. Like, we want to say, while well, Lipsky's no good and Montana De La Rosa also no good, but slightly better. It's like, that's not what, that's not how you want to bet. You want to bet on, I like this fighter, not, I don't like this fighter. This one's slightly better, right? You got to, you got to really like De La Rosa. Do people like her? Or do people just think she's making improvements in his, you know, mid range? If you had never seen Antonina Shevchenko take down and, and TKO Lipsky, would we still be making this pick? Like, are we are we discrediting Lipsky's ground game Probably. that much? Like, it, it <laughs> like seems like recency bias. So I don't want recency bias to get me. That's a, yeah. I'm trying to avoid recency bias. For sure. But I, I still believe that Lipsky has horrible takedown defense. And again, like you said, fish out of water off of her back. And it, it just does not look good, especially against going up against a high, uh, not a high level, but like a, a very respectable wrestler in Montana De La Rosa. We can say she's one of the better wrestlers in this division, that's for sure. So let's uh, let's put on Manpreet's uh, turban. Go ahead. Say Man- I was going to say manager hat, but I guess we'll say, we'll say manager's, his manager turban, right? There we okay. go. You manage Arian Lipsky. Bitch can't wrestle, right? That's clearly the issue here. What do you do? You send her to ATT, right? Is that not the move? Is the move not get her out of King's MMA and stick her in a gym where it has the number one top women's MMA team in the sport? She's going to be able to deal with wrestlers. She's going to be able to deal with a proper game plan. Like, is, would that not be the move? And I feel like she has made that move. She's got an ATT. She's no doubt making improvements. The other thing is, is that she's 27 years old. I don't want to write her off just yet. But I'll admit, because she's a mega babe and she was the KSW <laughs> champ, people definitely overrated her, and we're, we're, we're seeing that now. And I do have Montana De La Rosa to win, but, like, you know, one my uh, New Year's resolution, which we're six months into the New Year's, is to uh, sniff out the apple pie shitters. And, like, I'm, try, I'm, I'm just trying to play this one a tad bit cautious. I get it. I absolutely get it. I, I'm glad that we're both on the same side here with De La Rosa for sure, though. And hopefully she lands those takedowns and, and gets the finish or gets the decision, whatever it is. As long as she gets her hand raised, I'll be happy. Okay. All right, let's move on to the next fight. Another short notice opponent here. We got Maquan Americani taking on Kamala Kirk, who makes his UFC debut. Uh, in terms of odds, obviously, we had some shock on uh, Mr. Americani, but the line is starting to come in. So, <clears throat> excuse me. We had the opener at minus 305 for Maquan Americani. Now he's down to minus 190, plus 165 for Kamala Quark. And I think this is a solid spot for Kirk to pull off this, uh, the upset here. At Maquan Americani, I like what we have with him in terms of being a strong wrestler and obviously sufficient for those Darces and those Anaconda chokes and all that stuff. But how often, How long is that going to work? You know, I think that Kirk has a striking advantage in this fight. He's a black belt in jiu-jitsu, which should help him on the ground in case this fight does hit the ground. But the longer it's on the feet, I think that we see Kirk have the advantage here. Um, if people just watch this fight with Billy Quarantillo, they probably don't have the best image of this guy, right? Absolutely wrecking Billy Q in that first round. And then it seems like his cardio takes an absolute dive after that first round. And Billy Q does what Billy Q does. It's that Homer Simpson approach. He lets his opponents fucking beat up on him for the first round and a half. And then he comes back and absolutely whoops their ass. Um, and unfortunately for Kirk, he, he was on the receiving of that ass whooping on the contender series a couple years ago. The one thing I just found out, though, is that Kirk actually had a broken rib in that fight. So I got to believe that's got to have some sort of hindrance on your cardio in that fight, because in his next couple fights, you see him show off better cardio, especially in that Bruno Souza fight in a fight that was primarily in the stand up realm. Uh, 
I like what we see from Kirk here, a, a fight-ready product down there in Arizona with Santino DeFranco and those guys. Um, and another interesting thing, going back to that Billy Q fight, he was a minus 290 favorite going into that fight. A lot of people were very high on Kirk. Um, I'm sure the matchmakers as well were high on Kirk. And more often than not, they, they say that these contender series fights are like to, to find you know the next guys, the more exciting guys. But sometimes they're like showcase fights too, right? There's those fights where you're just like, oh, they literally just brought – like Will Santiago, I think, was the guy's name who fought Kevin. Kevin Holland and Kevin Holland just absolutely whooped his ass, right? Like it's just I'm just going to bring in these guys and and, and we're just going to showcase these guys. And for some reason, I feel like that's what happened with the Billy Q and Camelo Kirk fight. But Kirk shits the bed and uh, Billy Q gets his hand raised and comes to the UFC. With that said, I think we're seeing Kirk make improvements. Albeit he was a minus three fifty favorite in both of his last two fights. One of them being against Daniel Swain, who once again quits on the quits on the stool uh, in an LFA main event slot. Hopefully he's retired at this point in time because there's no way he should be coming back from that. Uh, but I like the improvements that we're seeing from Kirk. I think his striking is better than Americani's. I think his cardio is going to be slightly better than Americani's as well, who seems to fade later in fights. And again, if this fight stays in the standup, where I think that Kirk will be able to keep it, especially with his black belt in jiu-jitsu, I think Maquan's going to be in some trouble. Some people might be overvaluing uh, Amir Khani's performance against Shane Burgos in that first round where he was landing some good shots. But we've come to realize that Shane Burgos, great Muay Thai fighter, don't get me wrong, but striking defense is not on point for him. He does get hit a lot. And, uh, you know, I don't want to take too much away from that fight from Amir Khani. I think we're going to get a lot more better striking defense from Kamala Kirk here, and I think he'll be able to stay safe and then dish out the better damage against uh, Americani. So I I'm glad that the public is starting to realize that the, the line is starting to come out in a bit. Um, I already personally have a little bit of a shot on Kamala Kirk as a, as a dog here. I'm just trying to figure out how he wins this fight. Like, I think he could potentially get a late finish. We don't have any props on that. But even inside the distance, we got Kirk at plus 345. Ultimately, I think it's going to be him by decision at plus 390, which is even a great line as well. So I'll go Kirk, decision. Am I not given Amir Khani enough credence, or do you think that Kirk has the chops to go out there and uh, pull off the upset as well? Yeah, I took Kirk on the show, Dogger Pass last nice. night, plus 205. It was like, and, and I didn't even get the opener, man. I missed the <laughs> opener. But plus 205 just seemed like shit. I think it comes down to people like Amir Khani, right? Like, good looking. He's got Topology picture? Dude. Yeah, topology <laughs> picture's legend. He's got, before he ever even, like, really started fighting, he was like the Mr. Finland. He was wrestling yeah. on the team. He had, like, some viral video where he's just eating an apple. That's all he's doing in the video is just eating fuck? an apple. And it was, like, viral. Like, He's 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 popular and he comes to the UFC and he smashes Andy Ogle with a flying knee and it was like holy shit it like kicked off something there but he's he's extremely in my opinion one dimensional and you know what's coming he can wrestle this is a guy that despite you know what is what is Finnish wrestling is Finnish wrestling the elite level wrestling no it's high level man and he goes out and gets takedowns over everybody his last fight three over Edson Barbosa took down Danny Henry once three over Shane Burgos took down Fish. Chris Fishgold, three over Jason Knight, four over Arnold Allen, four over Mike Wilkinson, once over Masio Fullen. The only time he has not taken on an opponent is when he hit Andy Ogo with a fly knee eight seconds into the first <laughs> round. So, yeah, listen, we can't discredit his wrestling. If he wants you down, he's going to get you down. The difference is he just tries to snatch up your neck as quick as possible. If he snatches up your neck, he finishes you in the first round. If he doesn't snatch up your neck, all of a sudden the takedowns, not that effective in rounds two and three. All of a sudden the ground control, not that effective in rounds two and three. And all of a sudden, the striking, not that effective. Striking's never really effective to begin with. I'll admit in the Burgos fight, yeah, looked okay. Looked okay. He landed eight significant strikes in the first round. Landed five in the second round and landed a fight-high nine 
in the third. Problem is, is he got hit 72 times in the third and uh, eventually went down from Shane Burgos. But again, it's just, it's the same thing. If you could stretch this guy, you get taken down, you don't get subbed, you'll be able to happen. So again, he's popular, but check this for note, right? Andy Ogle has been long since retired. He actually retired right after that Mac Wanamericana oh, fight, wow. and that was six years ago. Masio Fullen, long since removed from the promotion and not doing good on the regional scene. Mike Wilkinson, long since removed from the promotion. Jason Knight is now bare-knuckle boxing dudes. Uh, he's bare-knuckle boxing Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, in fact. <laughs> Chris Fishgold is no longer with the promotion. Danny Henry, I think, might still be with the promotion, but you're getting where I'm at. This is a yeah. guy that's not even in the top 30 of the division. All of his wins have been over guys that are no longer with the promotion or, in Danny Henry's case, you know, close to the door. Those finishes, they're all usually finishes. First round over Danny Henry, Anaconda. Second round over Chris Fishgold, Anaconda. First round over Masio Fullen. It's the three times he's fought in good guys. Arnold Allen, Shane Burgos, and Edson Barbosa. So here's the dilemma. Most people will look at Kamala Kirk and say, he's coming in on short notice. I've never heard of him. He fits in the category of the not good guys. But you did your tape. You saw the same thing. He is a BJJ black belt, and he's crafty off the ground, man. He stays out of harm's way. He's got very good hips. He loves to make, you know, explosive scrambles, and he's able to work it to his way back up. He lost on the Contender Series, and then he lost his subsequent fight in LFA against Bruno Souza. Bruno Souza, oh, I, I scored it for him, right? Yeah. And he fought a terrible game plan. Bruno Souza is a world karate champion. You need to force the action. You but remember at the end of the first, Souza, like, botches a kick, and Koala Kirk takes his back like that. It's yep. so clean. It's so smooth. It's like... He clearly knows what he's doing on the ground. You look at the early fights in his career, he likes to submit. But now he's adding the strike into his game, which is why he stood so long with Souza and still made it competitive. The next fight against Guillermo Santos, striking looks good, gets a TKO. That last fight with Dan Swain, I'm all over him in this headliner. I think he's a big favorite. I think he can't, I think I got him at 3-1. He's 320 by the official what it went off at. But he just handles Swain. He stuffs the takedowns. He keeps his standing. He batters him. So with Makwan Amirakani, you know what? If we're going by logic, and logic dictates he's, he does take down everybody, Edson Barbosa, Shane Burgos included, he probably does take down Kamala Kirk. Kamala Kirk has got the type of jiu-jitsu that he's going to survive that front choke. He's going to survive that dars. He's going to survive that first round. And once Amirakani starts to tire a little bit and his striking is ineffective, that's when Kirk should be able to take over. Now you look at Makwan Amirakani, the Barbosa fight, he lands 11 over the course of 15 minutes. You know, we talked about Burgos, he lands 22 over the course of 15 minutes. You look at the Arnold Allen fight, he lands 17 over the course of 15 minutes. So Kirk's also good in a live betting opportunity where maybe he does lose the first round getting taken down, but he needs to keep this thing standing after that, and he, he, he'll be able to defeat Amir, Makwan Amirakani with the striking. He's the kind of sizable enough underdog that you're willing to take the shot. Now, they haven't released full props because it's a short-notice fight, but the over 1.5, minus 160, love that. I love that. Because I don't think Amir Kwan is submitting this BJJ black belt with a front choke in the first minute, first round and a half. Likewise, Kirk's not knocking out Maquan Amir Khan in a round and a half, and he's not submitting Maquan Amir Khan in a round and a half. So we're, we're banking at least that one and a half at the minus 160. But beyond that, you can get Kirk. Let's not get greedy. Let's just take him. But if you did want to get greedy, if you were a greedy person, the Kirk by decision is plus 390. And whereas I think even if Kirk is a much better striker, does keep the fight standing and beat him up. Let's not discredit Maquan Amirakani. He just went the distance with Edson Barbosa. And prior to that, he's 
28 seconds away from going the distance with Shane Burgos after getting hit 105 times. So he doesn't have a bad chin, man. Kamala Kirk is not Shane Burgos. He's not Edson Barbosa. He's not likely TKOing Makwan Amerikani. I think he can spring the upset, and it'll be by edging him in the striking for rounds two and three, winning a decision. Amerikani, if he wins this fight, I still think it's going the distance. I think he gets those takedowns but doesn't submit them, holds them down a little bit, squeaks out a 29-28 on the scorecards. But if they're going to give us plus money on that fight goes the distance, fight goes the distance, minus 160 at over one and a half, and a 390 on Kirk by decision, the degenerate side of me says I'm in for a little dog play. <laughs> I'm glad that we're agreeing on a ton of dogs on this card. I'm not sure if like if I should feel good or bad about it because if it's too obvious, then maybe we're not seeing something, right? But uh, I, I'm glad that we see we we both run the take clearly, and we can definitely see where the advantages come for Kirk here, and we can see why the market is heavy on Americani, considering he's the UFC veteran taking on a short notice guy, but. Do that research, and you don't want to overlook a guy just because he's making his debut. Uh, he seems like a guy that stays ready, trains out of fight ready, like we said, and solid skills. Go ahead. And so the last thing is that neither of us mentioned is the Daniel Swain fights three weeks ago. So he, yeah. he's in shape. He wins the fight. It's an LFA headliner. You know you got a contender series fight already in the bank. The opportunity's there, so you stay ready. And the fact that he's at fight ready, which they are just on a roll right now, man. Yeah. You can't deny that they're Tracy Cortez. And we always talk about Cejudo and the Pitbull brothers, but Eric Anders was a lost yeah. fucking cause, man. And he shows oh, up yeah. and he does one camp there. And it was like, oh, this guy did something that no one since Nick Saban has been able to do. And that's pull out the athlete out of him and turn him into a competitor. <laughs> like, nice. shit, man. He's back to his college ball days. He's hungry. There's no doubt that Leandro Higo, like, God dang, yeah, he called well. They win. do excellent things there. And one thing about it is they are in shape. They're ready to go. They've got skills everywhere. And I feel like Kirk embodies that. Makwan Amirakani's out of SBG Ireland. Let's take Conor McGregor's name out of the table. Who you like out of that camp? You know, Peter you Quilly, like, bro. You know, yeah, Peter <laughs> Quilly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, at least he beat the other pit bull, brother. But we've got Ashling Daly and Cathal Pendridge, Chris the Killing Field. Patty Holahan. <laughs> yeah, Brad Katona went there. Things didn't go good for him. Nope. Hakeem Dewadu does spend some time there, and he's on a killer role right now. I so you can't I completely. I know, I know. People, listen, no offense to Canada, but like at some point you got to... Uh, you, you, spread you your wings. To, yeah, you got to spread your wings. You got to broaden your horizons. You mentioned it with Trinaldo. It's like, you know, what's the point of moving at this stage? But it's like you, you're you never too old to uh, to learn something new. Yeah. I know we're getting off topic here and the show's probably starting to run late, but the Frank Mir versus uh, Steve Cunningham fight. Um, oh, yeah. From trailer a couple weeks back. Oxygen, I kept yeah. thinking like, why would he take this fight? It makes no sense. Why, why would he take this fight? It makes no sense. But... For Frank, he's like, well, I plan on going back to MMA, and I thought, you know, I want to test myself as a martial artist. Like, oh, I know I can grapple. Clearly, Frank knows how to grapple. I know I can do that. But can you box if you just had to box? Like, it's it's challenging yourself in these one areas to get better. And now I'll tell you what, when he comes back to MMA, his boxing will have improved leaps and bounds from going four rounds to Steve Cunningham, which I didn't think he was going to go. Oh, it might have been six rounds. I didn't think he was going the distance with Steve Cunningham, who I get it's 44, but dropped Tyson Fury once upon a time. He's a legitimate cruiserweight world champion. Like, but it's that pursuit for like adding new skills to your game, right? So even though you love your gym, and I started with this gym, it's like your coach is a BJJ black belt. The first gym I was ever at, right? The coach is a black belt. But if that coach went to a competition, he wouldn't have taken last place, right? Against mm -hmm. the other black belts because they were younger and hungrier and better shape. So if I was getting ready for a fight, right? Am I, am, I, am I pushing myself? I'm training with a black belt. I'm training with a great... He's got a lot of knowledge, but I don't have the bodies. And it's the same thing with the wrestling. First guy I ever wrestled with, he wrestled at the University of Guelph. That was, that was killer shit, man. This dude wrestled in university. 
universe. But but realistically, it's like the best wrestler from Guelph wouldn't cut it on a D three program in the state. So like, who am I actually wrestling with, right? Uh, the same thing with boxing. It's like, yo, this guy, this guy competed at the Brampton Cup, which you remember the Brampton Cup, baby? It's the fucking boxing tournament <laughs> for amateurs in Canada in Ontario. Yeah, you guys won it, eh? You guys won the Brampton Cup, didn't you? RG's camp. Uh, I, I don't recall. That trophy was always sitting in the lobby there. I, I don't it, recall if they won the Brampton Cup, now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Well, anyways, regardless, it's like there's that, and then it's like, oh, this guy, this guy trained in, uh, you know, at the Olympic Training Center, and you know, was unsuccessful in Olympic bid. So like, so there's there's always there's always that next level, and then when you get to ATT, that's when it's like, oh shit. That guy wrestled at the Olympics and that guy boxed at the Olympics. I got Howard Davis Jr. I got Steve Mako. I got Matt Brown. He's a world champion in MMA. I got Dean Thomas. Like, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. So as much as I I, I, I hate to be like, there's there's an area that you can go to improve, there is. And in Kirk's case, Kirk's going out and seeking that the best improvements he can. And in Mirakani's case, I think he's he's 32. Eh? It's not like, you know, we remember he's so good looking. You think maybe he's still this young chip on. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, you know. He came in, he had some fun fights, he was he had a little winning streak, and as soon as they tested him the first time, he lost to Arnold Out. As soon as they tested him the second time, he lost to Shane Burgos. As soon as they tested him the third time, he lost to Edson Barbosa. Now I get we're writing off Quella Kirk is not a test, but it's like I think I think he can spring one out here. Now Tom Breeze, who knows? I know we're about to talk about that <laughs> one right now, but like he's an apple pie shitter, my friend. The, the forever favorite kicking off the card or the main card here. We got Tom Breeze going up against Antonio Hoyo. Uh minus two uh, two forty on Breeze, like I said, always a heavy favorite. Opened up at minus two sixty-five. So uh, Antonio Hoyo has seen a little bit of action who's in that plus two hundred at this point in time. Uh no matter how many times I rack my brain in this matchup, it, it's hard to trust both guys. And it's even hard enough to trust Antonio Hoyo, even though he seems to be the value side here at plus 200. I just don't want to bet the price on him. You know, he's making all these mistakes against Ron Wynn, allowing him to, you know, Obviously, it's hard to, to defend takedowns against the guy who has the level of wrestling of Duran Wynn, but just continuously making the same mistakes over and over and over again is just not a good look. And then obviously, his cardio does not look good either. Uh, 0-2 in the UFC in this point in time. Hard to back a guy like that. But then you see Tom Breeze. The man has all the skills in the world, even has the body and the frame and the power to just be an, uh, an absolute powerhouse in this uh, in, in these divisions while well, to wait another way, right? Like, the guy's a big dude. Um, but... You know, beating Dan Kelly and 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 having the wins that he's had, it's not the most respectable, especially when he's going up against other guys and coming up short, right? Losing to Brendan Allen, losing to Omari Ahmed, I was showing a lot of gaffes in those fights, not to mention pulling guillotine immediately against Omari Ahmed. Like Omari Ahmed, I've never seen that before. I mean, like, it's just, it, it makes no sense why he would try to pull it. I know he's doing all these grappling competitions, fought for Polaris a couple times, and now he thinks he's a black belt in jiu-jitsu or something like that, trying to snatch that guillotine real quick on Amari, but it just doesn't work out. Then in the second round, starts to go for more uh, submissions and all that stuff, doesn't work out. And then when it doesn't, it looks like he just gives up the arm triangle choke, which just looks horrible. It doesn't look like he tries to defend it at all. Um, just tries to breathe it out. I'm not sure if you remember the commentary over there. Uh, DC's like, oh, he's out. Oh, he's out. No, I, I guess he's so relaxed. And then tap, 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 tap. And he's like, no, DC, he's just, he's not doing anything. He's not trying to fight the choke at all. Um, so there's a lot of uh, question marks regarding his grappling. His striking top-notch right when he's in the zone his jab is amazing his ability to maintain the distance is amazing um he has a ton of power in his hands like i said 
uh, I think he's going to have the striking advantage over Ahoyo here, whose strength is striking, right? I don't think he's much of a grappler. I don't think Ahoyo is much of a jiu-jitsu player or anything like that. So I don't think that uh, Breeze will have much trouble in those aspects if it does hit the ground. But it all comes down to mental with Breeze, right? We never know what he's what kind of mental state he's going to be in. There's so many times where he's pulled out of a fight the day before. I believe he pulled out of a fight a day of the fight too. Like the guy, we just don't know what we're ever getting with him. But if, if he ever comes in like with a full mind frame of I'm going to go in there and beat this guy, he performs like the best he's ever performed. Dan Kelly, you better believe he's coming in super confident into that fight. KB Buller, you better believe he's coming into that fight super confident. And then the Omari Akhmatov fight just absolutely shits the bed. So there's a lot of question marks regarding Breeze. So I'm not going to be trusting him at that minus 240, minus 245 range. I still believe he wins. Now we want to take out a, a, a prop here. I think Breeze has all the capabilities in the world of finishing a oil, but we just can't confirm or, or guarantee that he's going to be able to do such things. So what are the props that are here that we got? We got Breeze by KO plus 175, Breeze by submission plus 630, uh, Breeze inside the distance plus 125, but I just don't have enough trust in the guy. So if you want to go Breeze by decision, you got plus 245. I ultimately will be going with Breeze by decision at plus 245, but I just... I, I can't trust him. I, there's no. I definitely trust him a little bit more than I trust Antonio Royo, who shows just glaring holes in his game and a horrible gas tank. But it's not so good on the other side either. So like, I would call this the dumpster fire fight of the night because we just don't know what the fuck's going to happen here. You would rather be holding a plus two hundred ticket than a minus two forty ticket. But if that plus two hundred ticket says Antonio Royo on it, I'm burning that shit right away because I just don't know if that's going to come through for us. I will go breeze. I will go breeze by decision at plus two forty five. Please give me some more clarity on this fight. Yeah, honestly, the, what 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 could I give? Because we don't know what's going on in Breeze's head. I mean, he's very talented, no doubt about that. He's got the skills, but if he's not feeling it on that any given day, then he doesn't perform at his level. And betting that is extremely difficult. <clears throat> you just don't know where he's at. There's the assumption that he should be confident, and if he is confident, that he's going to have this and that. But again, there's nothing. There's just nothing to it. He blew up on the UFC scene like he was supposed to be the next big thing. He's undefeated. He looks good. He's uh, got good jiu-jitsu, he's got that good striking, he's got the jab. When he beat Keita Nakamura, right, he was a oh, minus yeah. 1150. And he got taken down three times, and he didn't look good, but he's almost a 12-1 to favorite, and he's undefeated. Sky's the limit. But since then, it's just been downhill, man, downhill. <clears throat> he pulled out of the Ian Heinish fight, like you're saying, day of the fight, because he had, like, an anxiety attack. And then they pulled him off the car, they scratch, and they bring him back against Brandon Allen. He looks deathly afraid, finished in the first round. He gets the KB Bular fight. And KB Buller looks deadly afraid, and Breeze, Breeze looks good. And then the very next fight, Amari Akhmedov, he looks deathly afraid. Tom Breeze is a black belt. Like, should a black belt be getting submitted by Amari Akhmedov like that? Like, I don't I don't think so, but it's, again, he's in his own head. The first round, he loses. He loses the first round. He's getting taken down. He now sees that Amari is extremely strong and is taking him down. He knows he's losing. His brain is now casting doubt. Doubt. We need to get out of here, Tom. Tom, it's time to go. Time to go. The, the choke's on. I could fight it. Maybe he's out. He taps. The Brandon Allen fight, you know, it's the same thing. He's in a bad spot, but instead of trying to improve position, it's like accepts the position. Tom, if you wait here, Brain's telling you, Tom, if you wait here a little longer, this, they're going to stop it. That's, and we can go home, so you wait a little bit longer. There's other guys that'll break both hands and fucking come forward. And we talk about it all the time, a guy that'll fight for your dollar. That's who you want to back. Tom Breeze could very well win this fight. He's not going to fight for your dollar. And that's sad because he is extremely talented. The jab's on point, like you said. He does have a you know legitimate BJJ skills. He is a black belt, six foot three of this weight class. He's long. <clears throat> He's got good cardio. He takes his time. 
you know, where, where does he lose his fight to Arroyo? Arroyo's gas tank's non-existent, right? Arroyo, I believe, is also a black belt, but the advantage goes towards Tom Breeze. The wrestling goes towards Tom Breeze. The striking goes towards Tom Breeze. It's just, again, you can't trust him. And I honestly thought, when you when you look at Antonio Arroyo, right, he gives up his fight on Contender Series against Steven Regman. He gives up three takedowns, right? Then he comes into the UFC against Andre Muniz, where he also gives up three takedowns. And then his fight against Deron winning is up 12. Deron Wynn completely gassed out. Deron Wynn, very undersized. And Deron Wynn just spams these 12 takedowns whenever he wants them. They're there. Clearly, takedowns is the way. Tom Breeze has never completed a takedown in the UFC. In fact, I think he's 0 for 7. In 0 attempts. for 9, I think. Yeah. 0 for 9, right. So, the if he's not offensively taking guys down, then I can't rely on him just taking Arroyo down and settling into his guard. So now we got to strike with Arroyo. Still advantage towards Breeze. But if he doesn't knock Arroyo out, I, I don't really think he's going to. Arroyo's just going to take his punches and maybe keep coming, and that's going to cause Breeze to cast self-doubt. Shit, he took my shots. But Arroyo's cardio is no good, man. And The Duran win fight, uh, it was a catchweight of 195. This fight's at 185. Like, he's got to cut a further more 10 pounds. Like, I, I don't know, man. I just, to me, it's, it's got writing. Like, I don't want to take that shot on Arroyo. I don't want to just blindly fade Breeze. <clears throat> but I've also learned enough from Breeze to be like, he's not the kind of guy that you bank heavily on. Looking at the line, the line that I liked, the only thing I liked on it was at over 1.5, minus 165. Just because, again, like, if Arroyo's going to break him and take him out later, he's going to have to do that. He's not huge on finishes. I don't think his jiu-jitsu is good enough to just quickly cement Breeze. I don't think his power is good enough to quickly knock out Breeze. And Breeze, meanwhile, a guy that relies a lot on the jab is not going to knock out a whole lot of guys. Turns out a jab was enough to defeat KB Bular. But, but I don't know that beyond that, you're just going to jab a guy into death all the time, right? Um, you're not Rob Font. And even then, the jab doesn't get the knockout over Cody Garbrandt. That's the, ja the jab is why, like, in boxing, it's so important. You set up the power shot. And in MMA, they don't seem to use it all that much. They should. They should. The best guys in the world, Drew Champier, you know, Gegard Mousasi, Rob Font, all those great jab performances. Like, a jab can win the fight easy. But guys prefer to just align you up with the right hand, Jeremy Stevens style. So is it effective? Yeah, it's definitely effective. It can it can it can get the victory. Breeze can just use the jab to defeat Arroyo. But I'm just looking at it as using it to set up an over one and a half. But again, I just don't have the trust in Tom Breeze to be perfectly honest with you. Although although officially gun to my head, PRP picks, all that jazz, it is going to be Tom Breeze. For sure. I'm glad we're both on Breeze here. But again. I'm, I'm not trusting him heavily with my money here. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Dusko Todorovic going up against Gregory Rodriguez. Coming in on short notice, Rodriguez, most people would know him for losing to Jordan Williams on the contender series. I believe that fight was last year. Uh, gets knocked out in the first round uh, and then goes out there and pulls off two victories uh, against Al Matavio and then Josh Framda while capturing the middleweight LFA title a couple weeks ago. The interesting part is uh, this third fight is going to be his third fight in two and a half months. The guy is on the horse just trying to get that UFC contract and let Luckily, he has the opportunity to step into here on short notice to fight Dusko Totorovic. Uh, but I'm not sold on him yet. It seems like a lot of people are sold on him. In terms of odds, the line has been closing. And, man, it's closing pretty rapidly. We had him all the way up at plus 165. Now he's down to plus 110. And it's funny how the public always does this. We're doing it to Santiago Ponsnibio later on in this card as well, where they're high on some guy. And then as soon as he gets that first loss, like, oh, he sucks. Why, why do we even back him the first time? 
So they're doing that with Dushko here, and I think it's completely unwarranted. Uh, you know, I think Gregory could win this fight. Don't get me wrong. It's, it is a possibility. But look at all those shots that Dushko took against Punahale Soriano and never went out. The guy just kept getting hit and kept getting rocked, but the guy never went out. The guy has a chin on him. Let's give him that. And Punahale, you know, he made the slight adjustment in terms of instead of throwing his, uh, you know, big wiggy hooks, he starts going down the middle. That closes a little bit more distance a lot quicker, and he's able to find the button on um, – on Dushko. I even said in the breakdown for that for I don't like his hands down striking defense style, you know, pretty much reliant on his head movement to get out of the way of the big shots. It's only going to take him so far. I think he's going to be the faster guy here against Gregory. I don't think Gregory is that fast. I think Gregory has a ton of knockout power. That is something that we need to worry about. But I think both guys have a little bit of durability issues, but I think that Dushko is slightly more durable, even though he got knocked out in his last fight against a, a much better striker, in my opinion, a much more explosive fighter in Punahale Soriano. Gregory Rodriguez, the one thing that I keep hearing about him, especially from the commentary team, uh, whenever they're commentating his fights, is that back in the day, he used to train with the legends, right? Anderson Silva, Leo Machida, down there at X-Gym. Nowadays, he's finding himself there at Sanford MMA, trying to, you know, uh, elevate his game with Henry Hoofden over the last two fights. It's definitely worked. But, you know, this isn't Al Matavio. This isn't Josh Frem. This is Dusko Todorovic, who I believe has some solid skill and still has a lot of potential to go out there and have some big wins in his UFC career. I think this is another spot for him to go out there and get his hand raised once again. Uh, there was decent value on Gregory Rodriguez, I believe, at that plus 160-ish, plus 150-ish line. But now that it's getting closer and closer, if you get me minus 130 on Dusko, I'm probably going Dusko here. I do think he has all the chops to go out there and beat the Brazilian Barack. Um I'm going to Dorovich. I'm going to Dorovich by KO plus 180. I think that's a solid spot. I think this fight's going to be violence either way. Uh, I wouldn't mind a small stab at the under one and a half at plus 105. Uh, I would much rather the under two and a half at minus 185. I know that's more chalky, but I don't expect this fight to go the full 15, especially with the Gregory. We just don't know how much of an impact having three fights in two and a half months is going to have on a guy, right? That's three times you're cutting weight. That's three times you're putting yourself through a, a bit of a training camp, getting ready for somebody. It's a, it's a little bit of a red flag to, for me uh, at a certain extent, and it kind of surprised me that he's only twenty nine years old, right? He looks like he's fucking forty seven years old. I know. But he goes what the out there. Up with that? <laughs> right? like, the guy's the same, same age as me. I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm twenty nine. That, that doesn't make sense. He's like the he's like the Greg Oden of MMA. If you even know who Greg Oden is, Cody, do you know who Greg Oden is? Uh, Greg Odum or Odin? Odin. Uh, does he play basketball? I he did he he used to. I while I'm finishing with this breakdown, please Google Greg Oden and tell me how that guy is fucking 19 years old when he's 19 years old. But either way, I'm finishing this fight with uh, I, I like Dusko. I like Dusko by KO. I do think he goes out there and gets the finish. Uh, I think he's going to be the faster one. I think he'll be able to stay out of the way of the big shots and actually land the bigger shots on Gregory. Uh, both guys could get finished, but I will go with uh, Dusko and I'll go with him to win this fight via KO. And we got plus one. Like I said, plus 180. Uh, yeah, plus 180 on Todorovic by KO. And uh, Cody, once you've pulled up Greg Oden, O-D-E-N. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Go, how, old, right? how old did they say he is? They're well, he was 19. He was okay. 19 and he looked like he was 45. Right, 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 right. <laughs> the one that always got me was uh, Gosmorod Antigulov. There, oh, yeah. No way he's 34. And when he was in the UFC the first time around, they're like, he's 30. It's like his nose is like to the left. <laughs> he's fucking bald with gray hair. It's like, there's. come on, man. Yeah. Come on. You'll, you'll get the biggest appreciation out of this one click adrian woolly sure dog oh i love me some woolly oh yeah exactly that's why i said you'll get the biggest cake a lot of other people be like what are you talking about but click adrian woolly mind you adrian woolly like, oh, oh my god 
<laughs> and he's like, he's dude, he's like 49, by the way, right? Jeez. I know, I know. And I, I had a talk with him one time. I was like, what the fuck, dude? He, he just starts laughing. And he's like, this is what you got to realize. Uh, the UFC's management told us we don't sign guys to the UFC for the first time over 35. And they, they do do that, right? Tough, you don't get in if you're over 35. Like, you have to make an exception. So they were like, he he's not 30. They lied about it. He's not 35. He's, he's They told at the time 33 because now he says yeah. 38, so it's five years ago, right? They're like, he's only 33. There's only 33. So when they cast the thing to SureDog, they just entered the age of 33. What's SureDog going to ask for a birth certificate? No, I know. <laughs> right? Of course, right? And so then all of a sudden, it's like, they're saying he's 33. So now uh, uh, an MMA writer, oh, Adrian Williams fighting this weekend. Right? They do their research. They click on SureDog. They says he's 33. So the article, the article now says he's 33. Topology, shit, we don't got a birthday for him. So they, t- oh, SureDog does. So they take the... That's how it works, right? Yeah. No way Auntie Gulov is not 42 years old. No way. There's no way. That's, I, I, I agree. When I saw Bruno or Gregory Rodriguez, I was like, come on. Come on. Come on. <laughs> like you said, you called him Brazilian Barack? Hilarious. <laughs> he totally does. He totally does. But he's like one of these big, strong, physical guys. They say he's a BJJ world champion. Mind you, he hardly ever uses BJJ yeah. in his fights. And then you see how much his striking's advanced. It's like, is he 29? It seems like he's got a lifetime of skills. But regardless, he's at the right place, Sanford MMA. He needs to refine his skills a little bit. What you do notice in the Jordan Williams fight is he comes out very hot. He lands a, two nice head kicks on Jordan Williams. The right hand's flashing. It's a little bit stiff. It's a little bit robotic. But the second he gets hit in return from Williams... He completely just stiffens up against the cage and gets put up. He was good at being the hammer. He was not good at being the nail. Now, against Al Montavo and Josh Friend, like, he's the hammer. And we know he's good at being the hammer. Again, he's got good finishing abilities. He's got good power. <clears throat> it's whether he's able to take that that return fire. And against Dusko, one would have to imagine, if you don't knock out Dusko, you know, you're going to have to be in a fight with him because the guy's always moving forward, and the guy throws a ton of volume. Remember this fight on contender season against T- Teddy Ash? He actually got landed by Teddy Ash, despite the fact that I thought he won all three rounds. But 109 to 102, it's all output. He keeps going. But he is hittable. But he's got great output. That debut against Daquan Townsend. Daquan Townsend, for as limited as he is, and he is, he is freaking durable, man. It's very hard to put away Daquan Townsend. Even Fentanyl was not able to put down <laughs> I knew Daquan coming. Townsend. I knew it was coming. coming. You know it's coming. <laughs> but Dusko just smashes them. Yeah. It's like, okay, you know what? If you're going to stay in there with this guy, and he's young, and he's improving, and he's got great output, and he's got good cardio, and he's undefeated. You know, we already talked about this many times so far. you got to lose to eventually, you know, figure out the mistakes. But he keeps getting away with this shit. In his mind, he thinks he's Sanchai. Problem is, not Sanchai. He's not Rafael Fazayev. He's not Neo from The Matrix. And so it catches up to him big time. Like, Soriano, the first three minutes of him versus Soriano, he's in it. It's competitive. But it's like uh, sand in the hourglass. Like, you're just waiting for the sand to run out. Like, you, dude, you can't fight like that. He's going to eventually hit you. Soriano has a ton of power. And when Soriano eventually connects, he just tops, topples him over. That's the one worry here is that could you look at me dead in the eye and, and definitively tell me that Dusko is going to come out here with his hands up? We don't know. We don't know. We have to see. We have to see how he comes back from this. He also just got knocked down four times against Soriano. It took a lot of damage, theoretically, to the head. It's only five months ago. He's still young enough. Did he did he improve those defensive lapses? How, much, how many improvements did he make? One thing of the guys from Stanford MMA is the good guys will beat your ass for 15 minutes. And the bad guys are only able to beat your ass for seven. 
but they all beat your ass. You know what I mean? Like yeah. even Sean Soriano is our most recent example. Like, yeah, you don't just walk through these guys, right? You literally look at all of them. Who was the other guy just lost on Bellator? Jordan. Fuck, cost me a ticket. Doesn't matter. Um, it's like they're always competitive for the first, and then it's Michael Johnson effect. The second and the third round, shit kind of falls off the cliff. Gilbert Burns, second and third round, shit kind of falls apart. But it's like you you don't just walk through these guys. Caldwell was the same thing against Higo. He looked great in that first round, and then the second and third round, he fell apart. This to me is similar. Gregory Rodriguez, if Dusko wins, I'm picking Dusko. I like that Dusko by TKO. It's a big plus money prop. I know you mentioned that one as well. But Dusko needs to really get this thing done probably beyond the first three, four minutes. Like, he needs yeah. to extend this to the second or the third, take advantage of Rodriguez's cardio, take him into some deeper waters and put him away. Because in the first three or four minutes, Rodriguez is going to be throwing heat. And the way Dusko fights with his hands down, the way he just got knocked out, the way he was getting dropped by seemingly every shot that was landing clean, it's all cause for concern enough that I, I get where the lines... Dusko should be a little bit of a bigger favorite, but I get why people are hesitant to bank on him. It's like he's probably a good live betting opportunity, you know, survive that early portion. But I think he gets the job done. He's just got to extend Rodriguez outside of that first. It's a perfect example of what have you done for me lately, right? You do, you lose one fight, you, you suck. So we'll see if Dusko is able to reverse his fortune. The official prop, though, the official prop is the under two and a half minus 185. If Dusko's nice. going to win this thing, he's going to take him into the later into the second. He's going to take him out. If Rodriguez wins this thing, he's going to take him out in the first. But regardless, this thing isn't going beyond. I know you mentioned you you like the two and a half, and uh, you were looking at that one and a half, too. And I was thinking, shit, the one and a half. Like, this could be This yeah. could be fireworks. It really could. But... You know, the same time, it's it's a prize fight. Both guys are in it. They're willing to go. I don't, I don't know. Shit, the way Williams took him out. Like, my the way my brain thinks, too many things come up. But the under two and a half feels a lot good. You can relax and chill and not have to overthink it. So at minus 185, that's really not a bad price tag, in my opinion. A couple extra points. You get uh, fight one, start round three, minus 160. Not too bad either. Still, it'll be nice to have those extra two and a half minutes in the third round if that third round does end up actually starting. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. Easily the fight that I'm most excited for, the most intrigued by, and probably will have the least amount of money on because I have no idea what the fuck's going to happen here. We got Santiago Ponzinibbio going up against Miguel Baeza, and we got a lot of steam coming in on Santiago. This fight's pretty much going to be a pick em by fight time, but Baeza opened up minus 160. He's down a minus 120 and uh Santiago Ponzinibbio is sitting around plus 100 now another case just like Dusko Todorovic who knows what uh you know what have you done for me lately you go out there you get knocked out by Li Jingliang you were never that good to begin with that's what I'm starting to hear on some people's channels and stuff and it it just doesn't make that that much sense to me he was on an absolute tear before taking off that two and a half years and he had injuries infections all that shit to worry about and uh and he looked very hesitant in the last fight right he looked very very hesitant they were pretty much playing patty cake with their legs for like four and a half minutes until he finally throws his hands and then gets a freaking caught and uh you see uh Li Jing Liang uncork a beautiful counter on him and absolutely stifle his ass and, and knock him out in that fight uh there's just too many question marks about Ponzinibbio because if he comes back like 75% or 80% closer to what he used to look like, he probably wins this fight, right? Baeza is a great up-and-comer. He's a strong fighter. Uh, you know, momentum is obviously on his way and he could definitely make it into the top 10, top 5. But Ponzinibbio is a killer in his own right. But if he doesn't come back and look anywhere close to what he did, like if he looks like what he did in the Li Jing Leong fight, he's going to get eaten up here. I mean, it seemed like he was gun-shy. It seems like he didn't want to fight or, you know, it just seems like he was trying to get the rust off. And before he knew it, he was already staring up at the lights. Now, we don't know how much that's going to play with him mentally here, right? You you come back after two and a half years off. You get knocked out. 
Now you're coming into another fight against a young, hungry, up-and-comer in Miguel Baeza. Are you going to be more gun-shy? Are you going to be scared to get knocked out again? Who knows how that's going to play with him mentally. But if he does come back, like I said, looking 75 to 80% closer to what he used to look like, he should be able to win this fight, which ultimately leads me to, I think Miguel Baeza wins this fight because he's been active. You know, he's improving on a fight-to-fight basis, comes out of a great training camp over there at MMA Masters. Both guys are down in Florida. Ponsonibi obviously out of ATT. Uh, but Baeza, I, I like his striking style. It seems like he learned from the Matt Brown fight, right? He got rocked a couple times in that Matt Brown fight, even to the extent where Matt Brown knocked his mouthpiece out of his mouth with one of those combinations. But he had the wherewithal to stay in the fight, rock him in the same round, and then finish him in the following round. And then in the Takashi Sato fight, we saw him hands way up, just making sure that he's not getting hit, making sure that he's staying as safe as possible. And then he goes out there and pulls off the submission at the end of the second round. Now, this is a big step up from Takashi Sato to Santiago Ponzinibbio, right? Even from Matt Brown to Ponzinibbio, it's a huge step up. But again, we just don't know where mentally Ponzinibbio is at and if he's going to ever come back and look like the same thing that he's looked like before. And the one analogy or one comparison I've been using throughout this week is Jeff Neal, right? Jeff Neal had a little bit of time off, had to deal with a bunch of health shit that he was going through, comes back, fights Wonderboy Thompson. I think even if he didn't go through that health scare, he would probably still lose to Wonderboy Thompson because he's such a crafty veteran. Uh, but then he loses the Neil Magny fight. And then what happened after that Neil Magny fight? He puts on an Instagram post. I haven't felt the same since the stuff that I've had to go through. And I know they've gone through different things here. But that just lets you know that a fighter will, you know, if they are affected by something, it could fuck them up for good. And that could be what's happening with Pons Nibio here too. Not 100% sure, but it's just too much of a wild card dumpster fire type of situation for me to be confident on either side. But I do still end up on the Baeza side at the end of the day. Um, I could see this being a violence fight. I see a lot of people touting the under one and a half at plus 130. Not a bad spot. But I could see both guys being so tentative and kind of disciplined, trying to wait and look and find their moments. Maybe we'll see that patent and calf kick from Baeza again, right? That's how he likes to approach his fights, debilitate his opponents, their wheels, and then start to let his hands go. Maybe that, that's something that Ponzinibbio did too, right? That Remember the Neil Magny performance? He did it for like three and a half rounds and finally finished him with some punches at the ending of it. But I do uh, side with Baeza here. I think if the finish comes, it comes after the one and a half round mark. Um, you know, the under two and a half minus 145 is not too bad. Fight doesn't go to decision minus 195, a little bit chalky. But I do think that's a decent spot. But I'll go with Baeza TKO plus 190. Not too bad. But man, I don't want to completely write off Hans Nebio because the guy's a beast. He's 34 years old, so he's getting up there a little bit. But at 35, 34, we know you can still go out there and perform close mm. to your... Um, to your prime or close to what, what you look like at your best. But we just haven't seen that from Ponzinibbio as of late. So I'll go with Baeza, but by no means am I lock of the night type confident on this fight. But I'll go with Baeza by KO plus 190. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, I would look at it just from like a pass as far as a money line perspective, I think. You basically nailed everything. Uh, it, how can you trust Santiago Ponzinibbio, the layoff? He comes back. He doesn't look good against Jingliang Li, but you give him a pass and Baeza's improving like... There's arguments to be made both sides. My thing is, like, I'm not fully sold on Beza yet. Yeah, he could get better. I expect him to get better. He's still young enough. He's at MMA Masters. He improves a lot fight to fight. Could be interesting. It's just there's not enough out of him right now. So, interesting enough, right? That loss to Jingliang Li snaps Santiago Ponzinibbio's seven-fight winning streak. That seven-fight winning streak starts with a win over Andrea Stahl by knockout, UFC Fight Night 80 in uh, December 2015, right? That's, like, three months after Beza turns pro. Santiago Ponzinibbio is five fights into the UFC, was 4-0 in the Ultimate Fighter, including a win over Leonardo Santos before he got injured, forced out of the finals, had 22 pro fights, all before Beza even turned pro. 
So, like, experience is on his side heavily. And when you look at, you know, the guys he's fought, you know, uh, Gunnar Nelson, Neil Magny, Nordin Taleb, Court McGee, like, a lot of savvy veterans in the mix, a lot of guys that are able to test him in the mix. Miguel Beza has been kind of fed, you know, a route that young prospects get. And he got, he looked awful against Victor Reyna on the Contender Series. He got outstruck, like, 89 to 61 against Victor Reyna. Yes, that Victor Reyna. But he dropped Victor Reyna at the end of, I think, the second and the third. Maybe at the end of the first and the second, but... The two knockdowns win in those rounds, and then he wins a decision. But he guts outstruck. He doesn't look good. Then he draws Hector Aldana. Okay, it's a free win. Matt Brown is 40, coming off a long layoff. Still manages to hurt him, and he puts Matt Brown away. That's a credible win because it's Matt Brown. It's a big name win, but it's not the Matt Brown. It is Matt Brown, but a grain of salt is all I'm trying to say. And then he beats Takashi Sato. He was booked to fight Mickey Gall and Jeremiah Wells, and he was not medically cleared and yanked from the from the Jeremiah Wells fight. All Weird. I'm saying is that, like, on one hand, he's still just got a lot of growth to go through still. He, he is one of these guys that is... All the other guys I liked on this card, the Mason Jones of the world, the, the guys that were coming up, the Dudo Tudorovich, they're coming off that loss. They're undefeated. They get exposed at some point. They become much better fighters. Miguel Beza will be just like that. He'll get exposed at some point. He'll come back a much better fighter. But he's he is there to get exposed. I just don't know if Ponzinibbio is that guy. Only because... Yeah, dude, it, the three and a half or the two and a half year long layoff, the eye infection, the bone infection, the everything seriously slowed him down. He is 34, but he's a couple months away from his 35th birthday. And the Jing Liang Li fight maybe looks a little hesitant. My biggest takeaway is he looks slow. He just did not look like he had that same explosive style that he had before. He fights with his hands really low, not Dudo Todorovic low, but he fights with his hands really low and he likes to almost counter, like bait you in and then counter you with the left hand. Uh, in that fight against Jing Liang Li, he gets beat to the punch routinely. Like, his reflexes are not quite what they used to be. Now, timing's obviously going to be off, long way off. Ring rust, I mean, all those things are going to be factors, but probably the difference between being 32 and 35 is certainly a factor as well. But, you know, you rewatch that fight, and Jing Liang Li looks awesome. It's not just that Pons de Nibio doesn't look good. Jing Liang Li looks solid. And everything he throws is a three-punch combination. Everything he throws is heavy, but their combinations. When I look at Beza, Beza versus Sato especially, he likes a lot of one-and-done shots. He likes the overhand right one single shot. He likes the calf kick one single shot. High guard doesn't really lead to combination punching, but he'll go high guard one single shot. Now, the ground game is what submits Takashi Sato. That shouldn't be a factor here. I don't see him taking down Ponzinibbio. We'll have two strikers going at it. Ponzinibbio is the more experienced. He is technically the higher level, it's just how much has he regressed. So we've got Ponzinibbio's ceiling has always been better. He's the better fighter, in my opinion, than Beza. Ponzinibbio's on his way down. Beza's on his way up. At which point do both of those meet? Well, we're only going to come find out on Saturday. But uh, I think it's like almost even money now. But it was slight underdog for, for Santiago Ponzinibbio. And that's kind of the, the side I lean my myself. But as far as a one singular prop i know you said people like that all violence under one and a half i went with the not so violent over one and a half because uh, i agree i think they're gonna stare at each other a little bit ponzanibi versus jing liang li he was not looking to rush it he was not coming at him like the gunner nelson fight where he finger blasted him worse than a virgin on prom yeah. night you know like he was not aggressive he was like i'm gonna take my time it wasn't like the mike perry fight he was like, I'm going to look to take my... If he takes his time against Beza, perfect. We're going to at least try to get this one and a half. Beza, meanwhile, does show a lot of knockdowns. He does have good power. But because it's one and done, he's not Jing Liang Li, let's face it. And he's not throwing that kind of heat and that kind of volume. If he does get a finish, I would like to think it's after 
you know, a round and a half in. So if I had to make a prop play, I don't really like the props on this fight, but if I had to make a prop play, the prop that I went with was the over one and a half at minus 160. I wish they played it a little bit more patient in that Jing Liang and uh, and Ponzinibbio fight. I had the over one and a half. I was heavily invested in that. And I was surprised they had it at one and a half. And then he uncorks that bomb at the end of that it first. Was, and it was uh, going it was looking good, man. Yeah, it was yeah, looking were, so good. It looked like a sparring match. They're kind of yeah. staring a little bit. Ponzinibbio is kind of matadoring, but he's not looking to engage. And then, boom, he gets hit. But Jing Liang Lee, man, like, you talk about a big bruiser. Like, that guy's yeah. he's, uh, probably outside of... Outside of the, you know, the former champion, I suppose. He's like the number one Chinese fighter. Like, he's yeah. built a career. He hasn't just came in as, like, a flash in the pan. Like, he's fought in legit contenders and just continuously gets better every time. So, I, I, I like to give Santiago Ponzinibbio a slight pass. But I know at some point, Baze's skill set is going to surpass what the Pons brings to the table. I, I just almost feel like giving Pons one more shot and thinking Bezos needs to lose before he really finds his true potential. All right, there's a bunch of guys actually moving up and moving down and weight here. One that we actually failed to touch on earlier in the card with Francisco Trinado going up to 170 pounds from 155. I think that's a great look for him, especially at this age that he's currently at and obviously missed weight in his prior fight. Uh, another spot was... Um, uh, actually, coming up right here is Lorian and Staropoli going up and wait to fight Roman Delize. It seems like uh, Staropoli wants to make um, a home at 185 pounds. And I didn't completely understand it at first when I found it out, right? I was just like, why is he going up? He didn't remind me of somebody that was super big at Weltweight to begin with. But he's six foot one. He's a pretty tall dude, right? Uh, he's only giving up an inch in height to Roman Delize, who obviously this is going to be his second fight down at middleweight. He used to compete on light heavyweight in the UFC division as well. Uh, but this is an intriguing matchup. I, I, I'm having trouble with this one, but I do end up on the star poly side of things. Uh, I'm not that big of a fan of Delizia and his style. Like on the regional scene, excuse me, he seemed like the guy that would go out there and just try to knock your head off, right? He, he just a bruiser, wants to go forward and, and wing those big hooks and kind of goat you on and then eventually try to knock you out. In the UFC, it's almost the same, but he's a little bit more friendly to try to go for that heel hook, right? Even to the point of, uh, you know, looking over at his coach like, hey, you want me to submit him, coach? Okay, I'll try to submit him. And then he doesn't ends up with his opponent. Him, he doesn't <laughs> yeah, submit him. Doesn't. It ends up with his opponent on top of him. So yeah. poor fight IQ, uh, especially if you're Eric Nixick, right? His his newer extreme control coach. Uh, that's got to have you like pulling your hair out. I know I'm pretty sure Eric Nix is close to being bald, so I'm not sure he's pulling his hair out to begin with. But regardless, uh, very, very, you know, questionable fight IQ decision making from Mr. Roman Delita, which just doesn't make me feel comfortable in terms of putting money on him. Uh, Loriano Staropoli, you know, a little bit of a flashy striker, unorthodox striker, likes to stick and move. Uh, that's pretty much how he was able to beat Tiago Alves. Uh, and then he drops his next to fight most recently to uh, Mr. Tim Means. But Tim Means, great technical striker, is able to set traps on the feet, something that I highly doubt we'll see Roman Delize be able to do, uh, which leads me to believe that if this remains a striking fight, we'll see Staropoli actually outstrike him from the outside. My concern here, though, is if... Uh, well, it's not if. I'm pretty certain that Delizia is going to be the stronger fighter here. And if that's the case, and uh, Delizia wants to you know, try to take this fight to the ground, I think he'll be successful in doing so. My concern, though, if you're looking to back Delizia with that type of approach is I don't think he has the greatest top pressure. I don't think he's the greatest on top, and I don't think he'll be able to keep Staropoli down long enough to actually make that takedown worth anything. Unless, of course, Staropoli lands nothing on the feet in a round where uh, Delizia gets him down over and over again. 
Um, again, highly questionable fight on either side. I do land on the underdog once again, though. I do like Staropoli. I, I feel like at least 75% of this fight will remain on the feet, and we'll see Staropoli go out there and outstrike the guy for the majority of the 15 minutes, and I think we'll see Delize take another L. Uh, Delize, uh, questionable cardio as well. I do think he starts to slow down late in fights, and I think that's where Staropoli will start to shine even more. So Staropoli, I think he will take at least rounds two and round three en route to a decision victory, and the prop on that is currently sticking at plus 255. I don't see this fight finishing. I think it's going to be kind of slow paced. I don't think either guy will get the finish. I don't think we'll see the lead day get that heel hook that he keeps trying to seek for every single fucking fight. Uh, and I think that we'll see uh, Star Poli, you know, land on him over and over again and get that judge's nod just based on volume output and the damage that he's dishing out. So I'm going Star Poli decision. And I believe I said it was plus 255. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, yeah. I honestly, I agree with you as well. I think this is another live dog spot. But again, not the one that you feel great about. Just because, yeah, it's one guy in Staropoli who's coming up to 185 pounds versus a guy in Roman Delites who started his pro career as a heavyweight, grappled professionally. Or I shouldn't say professionally. Grappling is never really professional, I suppose. <laughs> um, but grappled at 220 pounds, right? Starts his pro career as a heavyweight. F two first fights in the UFC are both at 205 pounds, beating Katie Sabragamov and... Uh, and his follow-up effort over John Allen, like, he's fighting at 205. The fight with Trevin Giles is his middleweight debut. A lot of people were questioning, is he going to be able to drop the 20 pounds, come down from 205 to 85? And he looked awesome on the scales. Didn't look great in the fight, but made the weight. So now you got a big boy taking on a guy coming up 285 pounds. And like you mentioned, it's like, wait, why is Staropoli coming down? Well, actually, Staropoli missed weight against Tim Means. He came in at 174 and a half. So... You miss weight, you lose the fight, you take 10 months off, now you're coming up to 185 pounds for the first time. Like, there's a lot of question marks. And talk about question marks, Muslim Salikov took him down three times. That's a serious problem. Tim Means also takes him down three times. We got a, we got a problem on our hands. Now you're taking on Roman Delites, who's twice the size of both those guys, has a better wrestling game, has a better ground game, has a BJJ black belt. It figures to probably take you down. You're going to have a problem, Right. But that's just at the surface, man. So I look back, and Muslim Solikov gets him down, but he can't hold him down because he doesn't have great top game. But Means can't hold him down either. Like, literally, he hits the ground, and he pops right back up. Now, here's a guy that's never been finished in his entire— or he got finished, I guess, his first pro loss in 2013. But <clears throat> since then, man, he's durable. He went the distance to Thiago Alves, who was a shell of himself. Went the distance to Muslim Solikov, who's a known power puncher. Goes the distance to Tim Means, the dirty bird, quite the finisher. But, man, he took a shin right in the head from Tim Means and, like, Ooh. hits the ground and just gets right back up and does not look hurt in the slightest bit. His cardio is pretty good. He keeps coming at you. Output could be a little bit better. Power could definitely be a lot better. He's not a finisher. I mean, he took Hector Aldana to a decision that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about his finishing abilities. But he's the kind of guy that is going to just outpoint you standing. If you take him down, he's going to get back up. He has not been submitted in his pro career. He's, you know, chin seems to check out as far as I'm concerned. These two losses by decision are over good level of competition in Salikov and Tim Means. That's all well and good, but he's, uh, this entire 10 months he's been off, he's full-time with Charles Oliveira. So as far as a guy that you don't want to be on your back for a long period of time, Charles Oliveira. As long as a guy like whose striking has come a long way, whose ground game has come a long way, just like the ideal training partner to pose, to pose problems in pretty much every uh, domain of the fight game, 
I, I really do think Steropoli could have made a lot of improvements. And he, you know, when we talked about Claudio Puelas earlier, I, I don't think he put himself in the same spot. And he's still 25, and he's still got some improving to do. This kid's 28. Training with Charles is going to help him. But, dude, fighting Tim Means and Muslim Salikov and Thiago Alva, the, the, those are legit. Those are legit fights. He's making those improvements. So how does he shake out versus Roman to leads? Well, Roman probably does take him down. But like you said, Roman's top game's not great. The top pressure's not great. His ability to suffocate a guy in, from a top position is not great. Because even if he had an excellent position, he'd abandon it for the idea of a submission. Now, this guy is in the room with Charles Oliveira. I'm sure he's working on a submission defense. And when you don't get the submission, you allow him to get back up. When he gets back up, he's going to be winning these striking exchanges the same way that Trevin Giles did. And again, I hate always looking at the numbers, but when you look at Dolitz's striking numbers, they're, they're non-existent. They're not there. He'll throw a spinning back fist. He'll throw like one big, strong power technique, but he lands 32 strikes over the course of 15 versus Trevin Giles. He landed 51 over John Allen, and that was as good as it got for him, right? It's just too low of output for me. So when it's standing, Steripoli should be able to edge him out. When it's on the ground, it should not be for that long. Steripoli should be able to create space and get back up. But I don't want a ton of investment on this one because, again, we've got a welterweight taking on a light heavyweight. It just screams disaster. Plus, grapplers typically win these grappler versus striker matchups, and that's exactly what he's got. And if you're giving up takedowns to Muslim Salikov, it's always a giant red flag. But when I look at the numbers, I think, you know what, as far as the dog play goes, I, I see Steripoli. As far as a prop goes, however, the fight goes the distance at minus 150, and the Steripoli by decision was plus 255. Mind you, Steripoli's not finishing anything. Again, do I got to talk about yeah. Hector Aldana again? So if he beats Deletes, it'll be just like Giles did, just the same way. And people online were crying robbery in the Giles fight, but it's like, he didn't do anything, you know? Yeah. Like, neither guy really did, but Deletes deserved to lose. MMA decisions, they got it split 50-50 right down the middle. You know, like, they, like half of them thought Deletes won because of the grappling, half of them thought... Um, the other side one because of the striking, Trevin Giles. So I got the same thing with Steropoli. As a decision prop at plus 255, I'm pretty confident this thing's going the distance. And if it's a close decision and the judges favor that little bit of striking, I'm holding a 255 decision prop ticket, which feels way better than what Deletes is bringing. And uh, last but not least, I think Clint brought it up, but it was like Deletes' pre-fight quote. You shouldn't buy too much into pre-fight quotes, but it was like, are you looking to change your style based on, oh, yeah. you know, you have questions? And he's just like, no, no, this is how I fight. It's like, all right, buddy, I've, I've, I've heard enough. <laughs> I've heard <laughs> enough. Like, if you're not willing to admit there's a problem, Eric Nixick, meanwhile, is an excellent coach. And, you know, but how do you, but he can't get in there with you. And, greasy theory, <laughs> Eric Nixick hasn't been the same since he became Francis Ngannou's training partner. <laughs> <laughs> because man holding mitts for that guy my Ooh. god you watch that embedded episode he like blocks the high kick and then he's yeah. just like <laughs> and it's like dude are you okay and he's like oh, that's why we get hazard pay <laughs> it's like I, I can assure you long term this is not gonna be good man um, yeah. but all the same yeah he, he has put himself in a good position in extreme couture but yeah if he wants to be exciting and he wants to go for these drop down for a heel hooks I, I can't get behind that yeah, I'm right there with you. It, it, I'm interested to see how he actually pans out the more and longer the lead to actually sticks out Extreme Couture. Uh, but again, from what we've seen recently, I'm not a big fan of what we've been seeing. All right, let's move on to the co-main event here. Again, this is a 14-fight card that we got coming right at you tomorrow. Hopefully nothing falls off in the next 
24 or 48 hours. Uh, but we got Marcin Tybora going up against Walt Harris, minus 175 on Marcin Tybora, who's streaking right now on a four-fight winning streak. And Walt Harris, plus 155, who's on the opposite end on a two-fight losing streak. Uh, I'd like me some Walt Harris here. Or sorry, I'd like me some uh, Marcin Tybora here. I think Walt Harris falls into that category at this point in time of the Jersey Rosa strikes, the Francis Ngannou's and the Derek Lewis's, which is either knock you out or they're probably getting outworked and, and beaten either later in the fight or by decision. Uh, I think that Marcin Tybor, all he has to worry about is getting knocked out in the first round here. If he doesn't get knocked out, um, I see this looking like the last three or last two fights for Walt Harris. And albeit, you know, Marcin Tybura is not Alexander Volkov. He's not Alistair Overeem, but he has been showing some good wrinkles in his game over this four-fight winning streak that he's currently on, right? Uh, he strikes for like a half a round, and then he goes for a takedown at the latter half, and then really starts to pummel his opponents. We really saw that on display against Maxim Grishin, against Ben Rothwell as well, too. That's a fight where I was actually betting Ben Rothwell because I thought Ben Rothwell had the power to knock out Marcin Tybura, and he landed some good shots on Tybura. Tybura kept chugging along, and he kept coming forward, and then eventually started out-voluming uh, Rothwell after dropping that first round, and then obviously uh, having a lot of success in the next two rounds. Um, again, I truly think that Walt Harris is K robust. We, we saw so many uh, uh, sides of him, right? And every time I bring this up, people bring up the Andre Arlovsky fight. That was a close fight. You know, he actually got outstruck by 20 strikes in that fight, yet still ended up winning that fight somehow. And not to mention, that fight's a no contest now. Dude popped for steroids that fight. And since then, can't go past the second round anymore. Right, uh, albeit you know he's finishing Sergey Spivak and Alexei Olenek in the first minute of their fights, and then uh, you know Alexander Volkov and Arsene Overeem, obviously much better fighters than him. But I think that Marcin Tabora fits that mold of guys that are going to be able to go out there and uh, stay away from his big shots. I feel like he's distanced himself a little bit uh, from his uh, knockout losses to Shamila Burekimov and uh, and um, Gusto Sakai. Yeah, Gusto Sakai. I feel like he's distanced himself enough from those to to go out there and show that he has decent durability. Uh, he's rolling with the shots now. He's taking some good shots. He's shown that he can keep chugging forward. And I think that once Walt Harris sees that he's not going out, uh, we'll see uh, Marching Tabora start to land those takedowns and start getting some ground and pound going. And I think he probably finishes this probably in the second or third round. Last thing I'll say about Walt Harris, changing his training camp once again. Used to be at ATT, then started doing his stuff in uh, Alabama, I think is where he's from. And now he's up there in Extreme Couture. You see a bunch of pictures with him and uh, he's staying at Francis Ngannou's house, if I'm not mistaken. And he's uh, trained with Roman Delize and, and trained close with Eric Nixick. But at this point in time, you know, the guy's 37 years old. How much changes is he going to be able to make? It seems like it's cardio is the thing that that is the issue, right? It's only so long you can go out there and just knock guys out and think that, okay, if I don't knock a guy out, how am I going to win this fight? He was able to do it against uh, Andre Arlovsky. But again, that, that was a very questionable fight, not to mention everything that happened afterwards with the steroids and stuff. So I think Marcin mixes this up pretty well. I think he takes him down uh, probably the ending of this first round, and that should probably start to begin, be the beginning of the end. And I think he probably finishes him in the second or third round here where Walt really starts to huff and puff. The funniest thing that I really found was uh, Walt Harris staring up at the, uh, the the screen to look at the clock 20 seconds into a second round against Alexander Volkov. Like, <laughs> dog, the round just started. You got so much more to go. Uh, so that that's just not a good side for me. And he came in great shape in that fight, right? Remember, we saw a huge difference between what he had in the ovary fight obviously coming fresh off that uh, uh that tragic story with his stepdaughter and then uh uh he came in shape a hell of good shape against uh, alexander volkov and that so didn't make a difference so um i will pass this off to off to you while i go drain the main vein because my bladder wants to explode right now and i cannot sit through these next 20 to 30 minutes that we're about to do uh so yeah i'm going tybura uh uh the props tybura inside the distance 
uh, Tabora round two and round three. Those are the ones that I'm going to be uh, circling here. So Tabora round two plus 600 and uh, Tabora round three plus 1,000. I'm hitting both those because I think he finishes this fight. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, I honestly think Tabora should be the pick as well. But we got middling heavyweights in the sense that but either guy could win. Walt Harris is a one-round or bust guy. Is he going to come out there in that first round, get that knockout victory? If he doesn't get the knockout, then yeah, you, you mentioned his cardio falls off a cliff massively. And one, he's a heavyweight. They're not known for their cardio. Two, he's now 37 years old. It's just he's never been a cardio guy to begin with. He's an athletic. He's a college football or a basketball player. Sorry, he's a great athlete, but he's a great moving that well as a heavyweight, that explosive, you know, fast twitch muscle. It's just tiring. Again, he's got huge power, but he just he's not able to sustain it. Once he had all that personal tragedy, the UFC took the man and paraded him to sell fights. It was a sad sight. It was sad because, obviously, everything that happened to him, but also that they were looking to take advantage. And they gave him a fight with his Alistair Overeem, which is not a very good fight to be taken when you're not fully in the zone. Comes in out of shape, like you said, didn't look good on the scales, loses the fight. Started great. Started just like Walt Harris does. Hurts Overeem. First three minutes, he's looking good. The last two minutes of the round, he gets taken down and he can't do anything. He gasses out. He gives it up. It's over for him. They don't give him any type of favor bringing him back after the Overeem fight and booking him against Alexander Volkov, a former Bellator champion, a guy that's six foot seven, a guy that's top five in your division. No favors done there. He does show up in very good shape, but it doesn't make a difference. And again, he's not getting any younger. He was at American Top Team, best gym in the world. Leaves ATT, goes to Alabama. I actually think he spent some time in North Carolina with Brunson and those guys for a little bit as well. And then now settling on Extreme Couture. Like, where is he most comfortable? I don't know. Is he able to recapture that magic? I don't know. But there's no doubt he is still dangerous. He still does have heavy hands. For the first three minutes of the fight, he still is capable of knocking guys out. <clears throat> and with Marcin Tybura, looks good right now. He's on a nice little winning streak right now. But there was a time not so long ago, you know, late 2019, where it was like he appeared to be chinny. You mentioned the Shabnula Arakimov fight. You mentioned the Augusto Sakai fight, the Derek Lewis fight. You know, he loses three fights in a row where he's getting knocked out in all of them. I mean, he goes one and one and three over the course of four fights, but gets knocked out in those three losses. That's all not good stuff. Now he's on a resurgence. He's getting better. He's like you said, he's put those knockout losses in the rear room year. Sergey Spivak is a grappler, a Ukrainian grappler, not known for striking it in the slightest bit. No threat of the knockout there. Maxim Grishin is coming up from 205 pounds, is not a heavyweight, also has relatively seemingly no power at this, you know, at this level, not a threat of a knockout. Ben Rothwell's very old at this stage in his career, very plodding. The fight was mostly in the clinch for the most part. Not exactly that threat of the knockout. Greg Hardy, now it's like, boom, you got that power puncher. And at the times, I had Tybor, I bet Tybor in that fight. At the time, it was like, I remember being a huge sweat. But watching it back, his chin wasn't that bad. Like, he, he took the punches. He took all of them. There was quite a few of them, but he took them and he kept rolling with it. And that's what I'm going to need here because Walt Harris is going to hit him. Walt Harris could hurt him, but he needs to just be able to survive that first three, maybe four minutes, and then he should be able to take this fight over. Uh, one thing you notice in the Overeem fight is Walt has a good start and does a little bit of good, ties out three minutes in. The Volkov fight, like you mentioned, he's looking at the clock. And I kept thinking, why does he keep looking at the clock? But it's the body kick. It's that Volkov mm -hmm. keeps working that front teeth to the body. Yes, that's the same technique that finishes him early in the second. But you see right away it's hitting him, and you see Walt just start to tire. And Walt doesn't want to let his hands go. The body works paying dividends. So you rewatch Marcin Tybur, and it's not the straight teep to the body. But look at Tybur versus Greg Hardy. And look at the body work Tybur is putting in. Tons of kicks to the body. And even when Greg Hardy's teeing off on him, about three and a half minutes in that first round, 
Hardy is gassed. He's huffing and puffing. Sure, he's got bad cardio. Sure, he's got asthma. But <laughs> a part of it's also like Tybura was using the body kicks. As soon as he gets hit, he has to, you know, relax because he needs to defend himself now and not worry about kicks to the body. But he was putting in good work. I think this fight plays out pretty similar. He comes out. Walt Harris maybe lands a couple shots. Tybura softens up the body. If Walt's going to win, he's going to knock him out in the first. If Tybura survives that first, he's going to probably score a takedown in the second round against Walt. Take him out. The gift here of a line, because we're talking about props, I didn't actually believe it when I first saw it, is the uh, under 2.5 is minus 125. That seems like a no-brainer. If Walt wins this thing, he's finishing it in under 2.5 by knockout against a Tybura who may have a suspect chin. If Tybura wins this fight, he's not just looking to grind Walt Harris. He's looking to finish Walt Harris. Walt Harris himself is actually the greatest under two and a half bet ever. You know, he cashed the under two and a half against Volkov. He was 30 seconds off against over. Or sorry, he cashed it against Overeem. He cashed it against Olenek, Sergei Spivak, uh, Daniel Speets, Mark Godbeard, Fabrizio Verdum, Surreal Asker, Chase Sherman, uh, Cody East. The only two times was Andrei Olovsky, Shamila Abdurakimov. All he does is cash under two and a half, right? And with Tybora, you just saw the same thing in the Greg Hardy fight. If you were a one-round fighter, he is going to take advantage. He's going to tie you out. He's going to take over. I think that's what's going to happen here. And if Walt springs the upset, which it's an MMA fight, certainly yeah. possible, I'm still covered on that under two and a half. But the official pick will be Tybora. I also saw, what was it? The Tybura by Tybura by TKO plus two sixty five. Is that not tempting? Like kind of yeah. Similar to the to the Greg Hardy situation. As soon as he got him down and Hardy's tired and has nowhere to go, the ground and pound just adds up. To the ref just has mercy eventually. So look back at Overeem versus Walt Harris. Right, he just flattens him out and Walt just accepts it. He does not know what to do. He has no way of getting out. He just shells up and allows for the ref to mercifully stop it. It's 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 a similar stoppage, right? Volkov finishes him with a body kick standing. That's fine. Tybora could finish him with the body kick standing, or you could drag him to the ground just like he did to Greg Hardy and take advantage. So that's the path I'm going for. And you know when it was like Tybora looked like he was shot, lost to Sakai, who's yeah. now headlining a card, and <laughs> lost to Abdurakimov, and he lost to Derek Lewis, who's now fighting for a world title. Like even when he was looking suspect with them. His run coincides with Jan Blockowitz's run. Like he lost his last yeah. fight, and now he's gone. He he went he went four and zero in twenty twenty. Yeah. Like talk about a hell of a twenty twenty. Might be fighter of the year for twenty twenty in terms of a resurgence comeback. I, sh- I sh- we'll give him comeback fight of the year. Not winning fight of the year for that, but <laughs> still a four and zero run in twenty twenty. It's like Tybura at heavyweight. You mature a little bit later. He's got great kicks. Even that Victor Pesta head kick from back in the day was Jeez, like still live, I still sleep at night. <laughs> Watch out, Victor Pesta! <laughs> like, holy shit, man, that came out of nowhere. But like, he is talented, he has good striking, and he's relying a lot more on that grappling now. He's coming together, and just like Jan, he's primed to make one last run late in his career. Worked for Jan. Hopefully, Tybora is probably only a fight or two away from a potential title shot. And I, and I think he gets the win over Walt Harris here. And last thing is, shame on you, UFC. Walt Harris, personal tragedy. Sorry, bud. Fight Alistair Overy. Oh, yeah. shit. Now, I didn't know that didn't go good for you. Why don't you fight Alexander Volkov? Oh, man. You know what? Lesson learned. Lesson learned. Chase Sherman? Yeah, no, he's available. But how's about, how's about you go out there and take on Marcy Tabora? Streaking. Just beat Craig Hardy. I don't know, dude. He's got a seventy-five and seventy-five base. Is that worth? Is that worth screwing a guy over for one hundred fifty thousand dollars? Like, come on, give him, throw him a bone. No bone here. I gotta go with Tybora. 
The matchup that I've always wanted to see is actually Greg Hardy versus Walt Harris. And that's a poll that I actually put up on Twitter earlier this week. And it seemed about 60% of the people said they would bet on Walt Harris. And I expected that, which is would lead me to believe that Greg Hardy would probably be the underdog there. And I take the shot on Greg Hardy as the underdog. I'm assuming that you would too. Give me a quick, give me a quick thoughts on that fight. Do you think uh, Walt Harris or Greg Hardy would win that fight? Yeah, I'm going to say Greg Hardy with Walt yeah. Harris. If you look at the last number four, five, five fights, uh, he's always just, he's got that one round. He comes out there. He knocks you out. If not with Greg Hardy, undeniably, he is making improvements, right? The, what he looked against Ty Bora was by far the best he's ever looked. And then he got tired. Yeah, dude. Uh, look, Walt Harris is staring up at the clock 30 seconds into a fight with Alexander Volkov and Greg Hardy went the distance with him. Like Greg Hardy is he's six foot five with an 83 inch reach. You know, a physical athletic specimen has no gas tank. Walt Harris is half the athlete, um, a slightly better power puncher in my opinion. Has more experience, but if it was the if it was the case that two guys that mirror image each other and they were both gonna get tired, but but the last thing there is that Walt has more heart. You know, like the Overeem fight, he could have been done at the end of the first. He dr- he hurt Overeem bad in the first, and by the end of the first, he himself is done. Cast. But he perseveres a little bit in the second round. He's in a bad spot, but. You know, he holds it together. Greg Hardy, when Greg Hardy gets tired, there's one of two things. Either it looks like he quints or he just uh, smashes Alan Crowder in the face with an illegal knee so that he can get DQ'd <laughs> and go home. Like, you know, yeah. like, he doesn't seem to want to be in there. The difference is Walt's been fighting for 10 plus years. He's got 15 fights in the UFC and uh, and Greg Hardy's is got like a handful of pro fights. Not that this matters, but thanks for just bringing it up. I don't know why I just thought about this right now, but we can move on. Is that uh, Walt Harris, this is crazy. It, it triggered my mind when I said he's got 15 pro fights. In 15 pro UFC fights, the most he's ever landed in a fight was uh, 33. Wow. 33 significant strikes landed was the most he's ever landed in a UFC fight, and he's fought 15 times in the octagon. And that crazy. time, that time he landed... 33 significant strikes was in 2016. It was five years ago. So he really does embody. He's either going to knock you out or he's just going to get tired and die off. There's no output. He's got a he's got a dozen good power shots and that's it for him. Whereas like Greg Hardy, I'd like to think that maybe there's a, a tad bit more there. But I'll tell you what, dude, book that fight. Book that fight for sure. Right? Dude. It seems good. I, I believe Harris is going to lose this weekend. And if he does, you got both guys coming off losses. Might as well throw them together. Throw Harris a little bit of a bone. And if he can't beat Greg Hardy, might be time to hang it up, brother. I, I'm not. I'm sorry to say so. All right, let's move on to the main event here. We got uh, more heavyweights coming right at you. We got Jerzinho Rosenstreich going up against Augusto Sakai. Uh, line has been pretty much just been hovering around that pickup line right now. We got plus 100 on Augusto and minus 120 on Jerzinho Rosenstreich. Uh, Interesting fight, right? You got again Jerzino Rosenstrike who falls into the category of Walt Harris and and uh, Francis Ngannou and and Derek Lewis, who I believe guys that are pretty much KO or bust. Now earlier in the week when I dropped my podcast, I'm like, oh, Alistair Overeem outvolumed Jerzino Rosenstrike en route to eventually losing at the last second of the fight. Uh, two judges had him up four rounds. One judge had him up three rounds. But somebody actually uh, corrected me. Uh, Jerzino Rosenstrike was actually the one that outstruck uh, Alistair Overeem in that fight, and that was to my surprise. I was like, wait a second. I thought Overeem looked a little bit more more um busy but you know rosa strike was throwing his shots out there but he seems very ineffective with his volume and with his uh, output right it's all there just to set up his big shot and if his big shot doesn't come he's kind of fucked over him did some good things in terms of clinching him up against the cage getting some control time i believe he landed a couple of takedowns early in the fight as well and that obviously outweighs everything that jersinho was doing in that fight 
Um, I think Sukai can do the same thing here. I think that Sukai has shown some solid improvements. Uh, obviously, last time around, he gets ground and pounded by Alistair Overeem, but that was his first ever fight, uh, five round fight in the UFC, right? That's ex that's an experience uh, type of fight for Sakai. Uh, he had a great solid first three rounds. I thought he won the first three rounds, and then it seemed like the cardio uh, issues started uh, uh, set in. Uh, Overeem starts landing takedowns pretty much at will. Obviously, we know once you're grappling in fights, that takes way more out of your tank than just going out there and striking for 25 minutes. And then he eventually gets finished at the beginning beginning of the fifth round i believe he takes that experience puts it in his back pocket and brings it into this fight and shows that okay i know what it's like to go 20 you know at least to get to the fifth round and now i know what i need to do to get to the fifth round here's a fight where i'm not gonna have to worry about you know getting grapple fucked or anything like that i don't have to worry about jersey rosa strike taking me down so let me just try to push this guy up against the cage for the first you know 10 15 minutes of the fight let's try to get some control time let's win some rounds and then just try to play it safe for the rest of it where i still have my gas tank intact enough that i should be able to stay away from the big strikes of jersey i fully expect this fight to be just as boring as the Siragan fight and it's not on Siragan. it's not on augusto sakai it's the fact that they're trying to stay safe and stay away from the big power of a guy that can put guys out with jabs like uh, Jersey Rosa Strike has done in the past, right? He has some heavy power in his hands. One little slip up from uh, Augusto Sakai or Sergan, and they lose half their pay. They lose their win streak, or you know, they for for Augusto Sakai, he loses his opportunity to bounce back from his first loss in the UFC. So you got to play it as safe as possible, and I think that's exactly what Sakai's going to do here. I feel like he has way more tools to win this fight. Technically speaking, he may not be the better striker here, but MMA wise, I feel like he can do the good enough things in terms of nullifying the power that's going to be coming his way from uh, Justine Rose's strike. Um, again, I don't like betting on guys that have that one path to victory which is if i find that left or right hand you're going to sleep did you happen to see the ultimate fighter the a couple days ago did you watch yeah. it yeah yeah alaska fc living it up again exactly right what's what's the whole thing that they're doing for the training camp if i land this right hand this guy's going to sleep and then the other guy's like just a high level wrestler from fucking college <laughs> yeah, yeah. All that type of that's Dude, all the shit but if we're setting odds on this fight it's probably minus 600 for fucking andre whatever the fuck his last name is that's what i'm talking about here right you, you got a jersey neurosis strike who if he lands his power that's how he wins this fight i don't like betting on guys like that and again i kind of slightly giggle at people that take the the straight money line on jersey rosa strike i think his path to victory is knockout why leave money on the table where i don't see see this fight going the the, the full five or uh, the full five rounds if rosa strike actually wins and here's a thought as well uh if you want to take rosa strike uh, or um sorry if you're taking augusto sakai and there is a possibility that Sakai starts to slow down later in this fight. Sprinkle that round four, round five Rosen strike. Who knows? It could come to fruition, right? Sakai, if he makes a mistake, it's probably going to come when he's tired later in this fight. Rosen strike we've seen can knock out anybody up until the last second of a fight. Could come through. Um, you know, I, I, I ultimately do think Sakai outvolumes him. I think he, you know, out MMAs him here pretty much. Uh, clinch work up against the cage, maybe some takedowns. Uh, you know, staying away from the big power. I think Sakai wins this fight pretty handily, and I'm kind of surprised he's still sitting at as a very slight underdog. In terms of the the Rosen Strike round four plus nineteen hundred, Rosen Strike round five plus twenty seven hundred. Again, just little sprinkles, especially if you're heavily invested in Sakai in this spot. But I do think that Sakai wins this fight, and I think he wins it uh, by decision. So uh, the the line that we're getting for Sakai by decision plus three eighty, absolutely beautiful line. I think this fight accumulates rounds. So I know you like this style. I believe that you're on the overs here as well. But over one and a half minus one ninety, love that. Over two and a half minus one hundred five, love that. I'd probably go just up to over three and a half plus one forty over three and a half. I like that as well. I'm pretty certain you're on that as well. So I'll hand it on over to you. I got Sakai via decision plus three ninety. How do you see this one? 
I see Sam Sam ninety seven scrapping with some of the guys in the comment section, but this frozen struck, that's fucking gold, man. <laughs> I gotta admit, that's gold. That's what he does. He's got the death card <laughs> shirt, but he's frozen. Like he is frozen struck. He just sits there and stares at you for far too long. That's the problem. Does he have power? No doubt about it. But this goes on to a bunch of his fights. It's not just the surreal Gagne fight. It's not just, you know, uh, the Alistair Overing fight where he just takes so long to get going. It's even the Junior DeSantos fight. Two of the three judges had Junior DeSantos winning that first round. By the numbers, Junior DeSantos outpoints him in that first round. And when you rewatch the tape on it, Rosenstruck just stares at him. In the second round, he hits him and puts him down, but he takes too far long to get going. <clears throat> the Overing fight, he takes three rounds before he realizes, I should start fighting this man. Uh, Junior again takes time. Francis, uh, the Cyril Gagne, the entire time he just stares at him. Yeah, do you want to bet behind that? No, you can't fully get behind that. Sakai, meanwhile, he's got the output. He's For a guy that doesn't physically look like he's in any kind of shape, he's mobile, he's a decent enough athlete for a heavyweight. His problem is, is that he doesn't look like he could fight five rounds, and then in the Overeem fight, well, he proves that to be correct. He, he can't fight five rounds. By the time that third round ended, he was cooked. Anybody that was in there with him that was a little bit fresher was going to take him away, and sure enough, those takedowns that Overeem's using on him are just basic one-on-one he's just too tired he allows himself to get tko'd if rosenstruck wins this fight that's how you get the job done you got to take him into the fourth and fifth you're looking at those fourth and fifth round tko props for rosenstruck it makes sense because in the first two rounds first three rounds he might not let his hands go but if sakai's cardio is still no good and he gets tired then that's the time it's going to take place but sakai's only 30 that's still young as far as the heavyweight goes he's at american top team that was his first time fighting a five-round fight and he was up three rounds against alistair over him incredible opponent if you go back to the drawing board, you can improve the cardio. You've been in that big spot. You you just got to shore that up a bit. I could see I could see him coming out as a slightly better version this time around and not fatiguing after three and being able to hold on. But you know, it is a risky enough proposition. I got Sakai. Sakai's the pick. It's another dog pick, and I think that you know at plus one ten, it's a dog or pass main event. I got him. I think he's going to outwork him for those first few rounds, and I'm hoping he doesn't fade and get tired late. <clears throat> the issue is Paul Shaughnessy mentioned this. I hadn't really thought about it too much until uh until he mentioned it, but with Rosenstruck, right? I keep mentioning he's tentative. Cyril Gunn is six foot four with an eighty-one inch reach. Right? You've got Francis Ngannou is six foot four with a eighty-two inch reach, eighty-three inch reach. And you've got Alistair Overeem who's six foot five with an eighty-two inch reach. These guys are all giants with very long reaches. And so Rosenstruck pulls his punches a little bit. Whenever he fights a guy that's his size or a guy that has a comparable reach to him, those shots land, and when he lands his shots, they put you away. When he's taking on these guys with 81, 82, 83 inch reaches, he seems to just be on the outside of it just a tad. So with Sakai, Sakai is, you know, 6'4", or 6'2", I believe, 6'2", with a 77 inch reach. Rosenstruck is probably going to put hands on him, and what we've seen with Rosenstruck is if he's going to hit you, those aren't the fights he loses. The fights where he does it he's just out of range the entire time and stares at you those are the fights he's losing what version do you against Sakai I don't know but he's 33 years old he realizes probably that you know it was an embarrassing fight the last time out no idea how he gets another headlining fight out of it he's got to fight he's got to go out there and let his hands go and if he was to do that then theoretically he, he could be successful now the Overeem fight he goes five rounds and the Surreal Gone fight he goes five rounds so this is another five round booking for him he's been there Whereas Sakai only been there once and failed miserably. So, yeah, interesting. I think I think the way I'm attacking it is the plus 110 Sakai, sure, I'll take it. The over three and a half rounds, the over three rounds, if your book offers you a fight starts round four, all that, that range, 
I like it. I think this is a heavyweight fight that's that's banking some rounds in it. But I will keep my eye on the live betting opportunity, whereas Sakai, very similar to the Alistair Overing fight, could go up three rounds. And if you see Tubby sitting on his corner, on his stool between rounds, you know, dry heaving, now's the time to live bet Rosenstruck because uh, even one single round of five minutes with this guy in front of you is a difficult proposition. Surreal guy never got tired, right? Uh, he was able to backpedal the entire time. Overy, and the second he started to get tired, uh-oh, face blew up, lip split, walk-off KO. I still still, I still think it was an early stoppage, personally, but that's only because I bet Alistair Overy. <laughs> um, what what can if you do? You didn't walk with... away. If you didn't walk away, they probably don't stop that fight. If you followed up with follow-up punches, they probably would have let it go a little bit more, and that probably would have seen the last uh, the last bell. Yeah, I know. And everyone was like, well, dude, the lip, the lip. It's like there's four seconds left. The ref wouldn't have even noticed the lip. Exactly. Right? He was seen Overeem hit the ground, and he saw Overeem get back up. And even though he was on wobbly legs, he was still got back up, you know? So they let Robbie Lawler fight an entire round with the busted lip. You're telling me they're going to stop the fight because the busted lip with four seconds left? Fuck off. Four I seconds. So. I know. And, yeah. and and again, I had Overeem. And personally, I had Rose. I had a 2-2 going into the fifth. So I had Rosenstrike winning that fight regardless. Interesting. But the judges did not agree. And online yeah. did not agree. And even when I tape study it, you know the reason why that guy pointed out? He's like, actually, Rosenstruck outstruck him. Um Overeem doesn't do shit in that fight, man. Yeah, the first it's just round, control. It's yeah, just the control. first round he takes him down, and he looks really good in the first round. But then the second and the third round, the takedowns aren't there anymore. He's too tired. He doesn't want to pursue them because he doesn't want to gas himself out. So now just nothing happens. And Rosenstruck's cool with that nothing happens type of pace. But eventually he's got to let his hands go. And with Sakai, Sakai's... He's got power, but I don't think he's knocking out Rose. I don't know. Fuck, it's heavyweights, dude. This, this, this is what I'm going to leave you with. We'll get to our best picks right now. This is what I'm yeah. going to leave you with. There's 14 fights on this card. Yeah, we want action on the main event, but there's so many better spots, to be honest with you. Exactly. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, 14 fights, plenty of opportunities. Don't just, you know, figure out whether you want to bet on Tom Breeze or not, because there's other better uh, big uh, favorites that should probably cash for you and are way more trustworthy than Tom Breeze. All right, that brings us to our three best prop bets. Uh, I do want to remind you guys on the back end here, please do hit that like, hit that subscribe. My goal is always to hit at least 100 likes on the video. We're currently at 87. I'm sure one of you 162 people watching right now could hit that like and we can notch that 100 like mark here. All right, let's... Uh, bring on the screen here so that we can get things going uh i do actually want to announce the ultimate weigh-in show cast for tomorrow we got a pretty good show we got my guy aaron water show aka at top kaiki on uh twitter we also got cj's wingman we got paul shaughnessy the coming goat. on tomorrow night uh i got the best picture i could find of him pouring that's a, a great Canadian into yeah, a great right picture. there i love it uh he's making his debut on the show tomorrow i'm really looking forward to that never done anything with them but we've dm'd a lot in the past so i'm very much looking forward to that and then lastly we got a very sharp guy we got my guy liam pick liam picks fights uh very sharp dude uh very active on the jujitsu right now the guy knows exactly what the fuck he's talking about and he's very enthusiastic as well so i can't wait to have him on the show to break it down special start time tomorrow uh i'll be going away for the weekend with the wife it's our wedding anniversary so we got ourselves a nice little cottage that we can disappear to for the get off the grid for the next four days so tomorrow 3 p.m eastern it's going to be in the afternoon nice and early for you west coasters but 3 p.m eastern tomorrow me uh, Paul Shaughnessy, Aaron Watershow, and my guy Liam. Uh, make sure you guys join us tomorrow once again, 3 p.m. Eastern. I can't wait to get into it you with you guys. You should have photoshopped a beer in Liam's hand because it seems like he's out of place <laughs> with these other two, right? And what is that? Is that a true, truly extra? What is that? Is that even a beer? 
I don't. I, I believe it's a seltzer or some shit. I, these guys have a, like <laughs> Paul a, likes seltzer too. Yeah, don't get I know. Him started on that. Well, what I actually asked Paul, I'm like, who would you like to have on the show with you? And he actually suggested Aaron Watershow because they have a love for seltzers. So they're oh, like, they're gonna good, pound seltzers good. on the show. I'm like, all right. I wish I could join you guys, but I have a three and a half hour road trip ahead of me after. So I ain't trying to get a DUI while I'm trying to go to a fucking cottage. Yeah, uh, but yeah, fair. great, great show. Uh, seltzers will be had. Should be a lot of fun. So make sure you guys join us once again tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern. All right, let's move things along. To our three best bets. Uh, didn't want to give you guys a seizure right there. All right, first fight up. I got uh, Trinaldo via decision plus 385. I think there's a lot of value there. I expect the fight to go the full 15 minutes. I think I don't think either guy is going to get a finisher. Um, but I do think that Trinaldo is the value side here, even as a straight pick at plus 200-ish. I think he's a side here. It's going to be a very slow-paced fight. It's going to be a low-volume fight, and I'd rather be holding that plus 200 ticket rather than a minus 250 ticket on Mr. Muslim Salikov. So one of my favorite uh, parlay props, or sorry, one of my favorite props is Trinaldo via decision at plus 385. Secondly, Ontario De La Rosa via decision plus 115. It's the one that I feel safest about in that fight. I think De La Rosa wins that fight regardless. I could see the potential of a ground and pound, uh, which I actually looked at while we were breaking that down. Plus, uh, close to plus 1100 for De La Rosa to win by KO, which is not too bad considering she could possibly get a TKO finish similar to Antonia Shevchenko from Lipsky's last fight. But I'll go with decision at plus 115 because I believe she'll just go out there and grind her out. And then lastly, y'all know I had to go with those round two or round three picks if I found a spot. And I definitely found one here with Tybura. I'm going Tybura round two plus 600 or Tybura round three plus 1,000. It's a no-brainer. If you've seen Walt Harris's past couple of fights, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Tybura just needs to you know, focus on that batting nice and early, get away from the big strikes from Walt Harris early, and he should be able to put him away in the second or third round. Hopefully, we can catch one of those round props right there. All right, Cordy. You are up, my brother. Yeah, dude, I'm surprised it's plus 600 in that Tybura round two because, yeah, that's that's how Walt likes to give it up. Usually oh, round yeah. two. Uh, yeah, I went Amir Connie Kirk, the over one and a half, minus 160. That would be also interchangeable with uh, Leavitt versus Puelis, over one and a half. They're both 160. I, I like both of them. <clears throat> but, yeah, truthfully, Amir Connie likes to search for the neck. Kirk, BJJ Black Belt, never been submitted in his pro career. Don't think he's getting submitted here. He's going to come in good shape. Everyone says, short notice, fought three weeks ago, looked good, got the skill. We're getting over one and a half, the bare minimum. And if he does spring the upset, we're hoping he springs this upset, he's not finishing Miracani. So this one and a half to me looks really good. Minus 160. I know it's not the juicy plus money that your boy MMA Lock gives you, but you know how I like it. Start building up the bankroll a little bit so we can take some bigger shots. Here's a bigger shot, plus 135. We're going to go Sean Woodson via decision. Uh, again, he's a decision guy. He is six foot two, 78 inch reach, big guy for 145 pounds but not exactly the biggest power guy going. I think in this spot, he's going to be able to largely to keep the fight stay, standing against Yusuf Zalal. If Zalal does manage to get him down, Woodson's just going to get back up. Terrence McKinney on the contender series, much better wrestler, much better athlete all around. And you really see where Woodson does get taken down multiple times in the first round. Always works his way back up. Being with James Krause, Glory MMA and Fitness, plethora of good grinding type training partners in the gym. I do think that Woodson's going to come along pretty nicely here. And again, I think that he just uh, wins the striking exchanges, does the exact same thing that uh, Subo Choi did and uh, secures himself a decision victory, plus 135. And then I got to take a little bit of a shot here. So plus 140. Oh, that's right. (laughs) I actually this close to putting that Trinaldo via decision plus 385. But to me, that's like a punt. And I want to give you something I think is going to hit. So I cowered it out a little bit. But we went with Rosenstruck Sakai over 3.5 plus 140. I would much prefer the... Fight starts round three, or the fight starts round four, then fighting a three and a half. But uh, again, I don't want to give you something that's not readily available on everybody's lines, where three and a half is going to be. 
With Rosenstruck, even though he has that power, he's just so tentative. We're going to bank some rounds. And with Sakai, he does have a little bit, uh, not, I shouldn't say a little bit less, a lot less power, has the volume. But when you respect somebody like Rosenstruck, it causes you to get a little bit trigger shy. Plus, he gassed out his last time out, so he's not going to want to push himself that much. Plus, he realizes, you know, I, I, I just, I, I honestly think that they'll both go into the game plan of field the other man out, not just try to finish this thing as quick as possible, and it should bank some rounds. Sakai's also really durable. Rosenstruck, who, Francis Ngannou knocked him out? Well, did it, has anybody <laughs> else done anything to him? Like, no, they both have durability. We should be able to bank in some rounds, I think, here. All right, there you have it. Our three best prop bets for this weekend's UFC Vegas 28 card. Make sure you guys jot that shit down because I think we're going to have a pretty good weekend. All right, Cody, on the flip side here, as always, I'd like to give you the platform, say what you want, and then I will wrap this thing up. Yeah, I mean, as always, you can catch me on Twitter at CJ Saftik. I also launched a YouTube channel recently, so CJ MMA on YouTube. Check it out. Uh, well, yeah, I think next week we've got a Bellator. We've got PFLs coming back into the like the second second stage of their season. We've got obviously a bunch of other stuff coming up, and yeah, Sunday I've I've got a my best friend's thirtieth birthday is on Saturday, so I'll be a mess on Sunday. But the video will come out. It's all about consistency. The recap will be out at some point, but I will be banged up. So uh, we'll see. And live tweets might half make sense and half might not make sense. We'll see how the night progresses, but. Yeah, pumped up, and then yeah, uh, just keeping busy, keeping, keeping going, and yeah, we're finally happy to be back. We had one week off, felt like an eternity. I know your tweets are the same thing. That's how I felt but when yeah. I seen you tweeted. I was like, shit, we felt the same way. It felt like a month. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Even though, we, even though we've been talking for almost three hours now. <laughs> I've had a pleasure, man. It's been a good show. Exactly. I'm surprised that you mentioned Bellator and PFL next week, but not even the big UFC 263 pay-per-view that we got next week in Brandon Moreno going up against Davison Figueredo for the second time. And then obviously here's a lot of Sanya going up against the second time again against Marvin Vittori as well. So solid card there that we'll be breaking down for you guys next Thursday. But tomorrow, like I said, Ultimate Wayne Show, Paul Shaughnessy, a.k.a. the other half of the Dogger Pass podcast, is going to be on the Ultimate Wayne Show tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern. Make sure you guys check that out. Uh, obviously, Aaron Water Show is going to be on it as well, as well as my guy, Liam Picks Fights. If you're looking for Cody's uh, YouTube channel, Link is in my description below. So make sure you guys go out there. You guys don't have to search anything. Just click that bad boy and then click subscribe and you'll get all that juicy content from my guy, Cody Saftik. So make sure you guys check that out. Obviously, make sure you guys hit the like and subscribe on this video as well. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Easily the longest show that we've ever done in the in the history of this show. But it was nice to do it after a long little layoff for us. Uh, but yeah, good luck on your bets uh, this weekend, fellas. And I'll see you guys tomorrow for the Ultimate Way-In Show. But me and Cody will see you guys next Thursday once again, breaking down UFC 263. 8 p.m. Eastern, Thursday night. Good luck on your best this weekend, guys. See you then.